Good evening, and welcome to the December 10th, 2019 Australia Planning Commission. Do we have the roll call, please? Commissioner Womack. Here. Commissioner Moore. Here. Commissioner Fitzpatrick. Here. Commissioner Cameron Lytek. Here. Commissioner Corcoran. Here. Commissioner Price.
the work section is closed. So, Honor Fryer. Thank you. Um, so we're here to discuss four items on the agenda um, tonight. Um, accessory dwelling units um, having to do with legislative changes, um, and then also the countywide housing report and some recommendations from that. Um, temporary warming centers. Sorry. There. Okay, temporary warming center. Um, this one's not working. Um, small cell wireless and columbarium in Astoria. So um, the housing amendment. Okay, so the first proposal has to do with housing. Um, House Bill 2001 was passed in 2019. And generally, the regulations apply to cities greater than 10,000 people. Um, the issues that relate to populations of cities that are 25,000 and greater include accessory dwelling units. And so we must allow an ADU, an accessory dwelling unit, anywhere a detached single family dwelling is allowed. Okay? It can be interior, so a floor, a basement, an attic, a floor of the dwelling. It could be an addition, and it could be um, a detached dwelling. The um, two primary things that we can no longer require are owner occupancy and off-street parking. That does not mean that you can't require the off-street parking for the primary dwelling. So the primary dwelling still would require two off-street parking spaces and we just could not require additional spaces for the accessory dwelling unit. So the countywide housing study looked at increasing the maximum size of accessory dwelling units as a percentage of the primary dwelling from 40% to 60 to 80%. Um, so that you could get a bigger accessory dwelling unit. Some of the other things that they requested that we consider is allowing two accessory dwelling units per lot if one is attached and one is internal. And that's a consideration, that's not a requirement. They also said to consider allowing accessory dwelling units up to the height of the primary dwelling. So this would be very effective for, say, somebody who wanted to maybe convert their garage to allow for an apartment above the garage. Um, and to clarify whether the unit may be attached, detached, or internal, and we talked about that a moment ago, having to do with the legislation and that it requires us to allow all three types. Um, it also recommended removing owner occupancy 
and to reduce or remove the minimum off-street parking. And that's the countywide housing study. So they're duplicative of the um, legislation. I would note that with the county housing study, that was completed before the legislation was adopted at the state level. So what was a recommendation before as a part of the county housing study became law in the state of Oregon subsequently? Some of the other um, countywide housing strategies that we'll consider later um, as a different amendment is looking at minimum densities. Um, the recommendation is that in R3, the existing lot size requirements limit the density to less than the maximum allowed. And so um, they recommend that we consider looking at minimum densities. Um, they recommend that we consider adopting a greater intensity zoning district for more intensive housing, so maybe an R4 in certain areas. Um, allowing high density housing in commercial areas, allowing vertical mixed use development outright, limiting short term rentals in residential zones. And there's another number of ways to do that, and the report talks about some of those ways. And then the last item that um, the countywide housing strategy talks about is workforce housing for working people. And we've had a number of um, inquiries about different items, um, such as single room occupancy. Um, that's where a room is um, provided for a person to live in. And the restroom is typically down the hall. And that there is a shared cooking facility. Um, as opposed to a studio, where the cooking and um, restroom facilities are typically integrated into the unit. We've had a request for um, dormitories, and so considering allowing more than one person to stay in a room, um, such as four to eight people in bunk bed type situations, like a dormitory. Um, and other group housing that has been proposed or has been talked about is different types of senior housing and potentially co-housing. And so allowing for some different types of housing in our perhaps R3 zone um, would allow for these types of housing to occur. So um, let's see. So I have identified um, specific changes to the development code with regard to accessory dwelling units. And um, at this point, we can open up the discussion, if you will, to um, the information that you've heard thus far, or we can go through the proposed um, changes to the accessory dwelling unit legislation as I've outlined in the memos that you received. So it's your choice how you want to proceed at this point. Do any of the commissioners have a very strong feeling one way or the other on this? I think I'd like to step through the proposed changes before we have any extended discussion about additional changes. I like that 
Okay, so the, the um, four articles that are proposed to be changed include Article 2, the use zones. There we go. The use zones to add an ADU as a permitted outright use in the R1, CR, and AHMP. And then in the institutional zone, ADUs as permitted within a single family dwelling on a lot where such use existed as of January 1st, 1990. Add the ADU as a permitted use in the A3 zone where the single family dwelling existed prior to October 1st, 2002, eliminating the minimum lot sizes for accessory dwelling units in R2, R3, and CR zones. And what that means is that currently today, um, if you have a 5,000 square foot lot, let's say, and you want to build an ADU, you have to have an additional amount of square footage. It differs in the R2 and R3. And so, um, we would propose eliminating that because in order to allow outright an accessory dwelling unit wherever a single family dwelling is permitted, you would have to get rid of that requirement. Now that doesn't mean that for a duplex, a duplex is different. You would still allow that requirement in the, in the code. So it's just for accessory dwelling units. Um, and remove the conditional use permit requirement in R1 and eliminate the parking requirements throughout. So in um, Article 3, having to do with accessory dwelling units, 3.020, we would eliminate, we would modify the definition of primary dwelling if you wanted to keep the requirement of a primary dwelling. Um, we would eliminate the conditional use requirement, owner occupancy, lot size, off-street parking requirements, and because we're eliminating the owner occupancy and off-street parking, we would eliminate the expiration of the conditional use permit. And then in speaking in our um, Wednesday morning um, interdepartmental meetings, we talked to the fire department and one of the things that they're concerned about is getting back to some accessory dwelling units. And so trying to have um, either a 10 foot side yard or having something so that it's clear passage for the um, the fire and rescue people to get back to the accessory dwelling unit. We don't want to um, narrow too much the the width of the um, access way in an emergency. Ms. Fryer, yes. will the state allow us to require a 10-foot side yard emergency access? They will allow us to do, um, to um, have design issues addressed and this is a design issue that I think we could address. I can clarify that with DLCD, with the Department of Land Conservation and Development, um, if this is something that you guys want to move forward with. Okay, thank you. Yes. So Article 7, the off-street parking and loading section, we would eliminate the requirement 
for accessory dwelling units and add the statement, no additional parking is required, just so it's clear that the primary dwelling still requires parking. And then under Article 11 conditional uses, we would eliminate the accessory dwelling unit in R1 as a type two conditional use. So additional considerations that you might think about is eliminate the minimum size of the primary dwelling unit. In the proposal that I had before you, um, it did eliminate the minimum lot size for a primary dwelling unit as currently today it's 1,400 square feet. Um, and the proposal that I had would eliminate that. Um, adding a deta detached ADU to creation of the unit section, or we could use the DLCD guidance definition. And that's in the document that you received by email that looks like um, this one. And so that guidance begins, it's on their, in their model code and it begins on page five of that document. They also recommend adding information on whether manufactured homes, mobile homes, prefabricated homes, modular homes, and shipping containers would be allowed as a, an accessory dwelling unit. Um, for new construction adjacent to a historic landmark, that would go to the Historic Landmarks Commission. But our code is currently, does not allow a manufactured home, modular home, prefabricated home that is smaller than a thousand square feet. So we would need to clear that up in the code if you wanted to move forward with allowing for those type of homes. Ms. Fryer, can I add something to that? So when, um, the, let me back up, the Planning Commission and the City Council worked through some changes to our accessory dwelling unit uh, code in 2016. Uh, there was subsequently a one-year review of this code by the City Council, and the issue of allowing um, a modular or uh, manufactured home came up at that time at the City Council meeting. And one of the things that the City Council has directed the Planning Commission to do as a part of this amendment is to determine specifically whether or not to allow um, manufactured or modular homes as accessory dwelling units. They've asked the Planning Commission to have a dialogue, and there are representatives in the audience tonight who are prepared to discuss this, and these are the same representatives who came to City Council um, to raise this concern um, when it went before them at their one-year review. Thank you. So there are three more recommendations, um, or actually prohibit, so there are four, five more things. Um, prohibit homestay lodging in the ADU. I'm recommending that we, we do that because this is really to help solve a housing crisis, not to solve a second unit, or um, I believe we do. So to maintain that prohibition. And then um, 
There is a section in the engineering code that says any dwelling unit could require additional street, half street improvements. And so um, in talking with the engineering department, we might need to look at clarifying that an ADU does not tra trigger additional transportation requirements. Um, and so I can, if that's something that you guys are interested in, I can continue working with engineering to make sure that happens. And then modifying the maximum lot coverage per DLCD guidance. So what that means is um, that section um, having to do with lot coverage. So our current code requires that no more than 40% of the lot be covered in dwelling or in building. Um, this would potentially change it to maybe 50% lot coverage. So it's something to talk about whether you want to change that or not. And then another one is to talk about whether you want to allow two units if one is internal to the structure. So um, I'll need your guidance about that. And then the last one is um, if the dwelling is, the accessory dwelling is internal to the structure, there's no exterior changes, it's internal to the structure, is it possible to allow for a greater square footage so that somebody could potentially use maybe a whole floor of their home or a basement of their home as that internal ADU instead of saying it's a max only for the internal ones instead of having a maximum of say 800 square feet. So I think that's all the things that we really, oops, yeah, that's, that's it for, um, so, so what I'd like from you folks is to have a discussion about these different items and then um, I could write the code amendments and then either come back to you on January 28th so that you can look at them one more time or go ahead and package them with the other three amendments that are here tonight um, in a DLCD notice in February. And then you would hear it in March. You would see the whole new code in March. So it's either coming back to you with a developed code in, in um, January on your 28th meeting based on your comments tonight and the comments from the audience, if you allow that testimony, um, and then coming back to you with that. I'd like to be able to provide a little bit more context for the Planning Commission in terms of where the legislature is headed on a lot of these things. One issue that the city of Astoria is not having to deal with at this point in time is a provision for cities over 10,000 people in size. We are at the cusp. However, for cities over 10,000 people in size, there are additional requirements which the state legislature has put on communities dealing with housing development. 
One of the things that would be triggered if we went over 10,000 size is if we would no longer be able to have a single family residential solely um, zoned districts. We would have to allow duplexes as permitted uses in those zones as well. Um, and so, um, so communities over 10,000 in size across the state of Oregon right now are having to go through and update their codes uh, to be able to allow that uh, duplex use in single family res currently single family residential districts. We're not there yet. That could be something that could be a community discussion for later on if, if the planning commission or council wish to, to dialogue about that. But, but I think you can kind of see a trend in terms of where the legislature is heading in terms of being uh, in requiring local jurisdictions uh, to have a higher level of density within their residential areas. Great, thank you. Okay, are there any persons in the audience that would like to speak regarding the ADUs, any of the topics that have been brought up here? If so, please step to the lectern, state your name, and give your address for the record, and then please limit your comments to three minutes. Do we have a timer this evening? Sure. Thank you. I'll be quick. My name is Cheryl Matson. Um, I'm a homeowner at 5450 Old Highway 30 out by Tongue Point. I have no neighbors. Um, I'm looking, or I was looking, and still looking to put an ADU on my property, but I picked up a manufactured home that um, two years ago, I'm probably one of the ones that Brett talked about, is I got excited when you guys passed the law that we could put on an ADU on our property. So I went out and purchased a manufactured home, 450 square feet. Um, it comes from McMinnville, and they can deliver it to my property, but it comes in on wheels. Even though it will come in on wheels, and they'll place it, and it'll have a deck around it, and it'll be wrapped, and it'll be permanent on a platform, they then considered it, if it wasn't a manufactured home, it would be a tiny home, and tiny homes couldn't come in on wheels. So I'm kind of in that cusp of trying to get this law passed where I could have an accessory dwelling unit and originally it was for my father-in-law and it's now been two years and he has since passed away. But I have 13 stairs in my home and as I age up, I'm hoping that this will eventually be my little mother-in-law suite. So it's kind of like Cheryl's she shed, <laughs> but only I need it to be a little bit of an income property until I get to that point. But um, it uh, has a little kitchenette in it. It has a bedroom on one end, and um, it comes fully set up. I can have it um, the same as my um, siding. I got bigger windows. I got upgraded. It has the HUD housing. Um, I just need a seal of approval for, from you guys is what I'm waiting for right now. Thank you. That's my, does anybody want this to see that? Would anybody else like to address us regarding ADUs this evening? Just ADUs? Just ADUs? Mm -hmm. Just ADUs. Well, and housing, right? Yeah. That's what I was wondering. 
On the housing in general? Yes. Okay. Thank you. Sorry, Kevin. Thank you, Chair. Uh, so good evening, Kevin Lady, 1759 5th Street, Australia. Um, I'm here representing CEDAR. I'm the director of CEDAR and the Classic Community College Small Business Development Center. And I, I have brought copies for the commission members this evening, if you've not seen it, of the housing study uh, results from the employer standpoint about the feedback that we were, we've been given from our employers here in Classic County. Uh, our CEDAR board meeting in September, we addressed housing as the single topic. Uh, uh, city manager Essa sits on the on the Cedar board, um, and we have representatives from each of the cities, the county, and the private sector as part of that. Uh, what I have tonight is we've uh, addressed the fact that, that we need to continue to be the voice of the business community in our organization. And I have here, I'll pass it out to each of you. I have this uh, delivered to the city councilors. This is just a recap of, uh, not just a recap, this is, this is a recap from 19 uh, key employers here in Clatsop County about the, uh, what the lack of affordable and workforce and marketplace housing has meant for their business. I just want to draw attention to a couple of the um, employers here. Uh, this is in alphabetical order. And I have, for example, Columbia Memorial Hospital, uh, Zach Schmidt uh, serves on our board. Has the housing shortage impacted your business? Yes. Affordable housing has prevented qualified caregivers from being able to retain or get a job at CMH. Many of our employees struggle with finding affordable housing due to lack of inventory or just sky-high rent. What are the top, and I'm, I'm not going to read everything line by line, <clears throat> what are the top few recommendations? Uh, refrain from legislation or economic factors driving high housing costs. Identify low-cost strategies to fund and enable affordable housing. Happily welcome and take serious feedback from community members. Also draw attention here to England Marine Supply from Kurt England. Again, I'm talking quickly. I don't want to take up too much of your time here. So has it impacted your business? Uh, yes, our fish processing customers are having a hard time filling their employment needs, of which some is due to a lack of affordable housing. Recommendations, reduce the regulatory cost of housing projects. Speed up the, speed up the permit process. Be more liberal in allowing housing projects on available lands. All these things I know that, 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 we, that you are aware of and well aware of, and I'd say that we're, we just stand ready to, to assist uh, City of Astoria, the other, the other cities in Plaza County and the county to um, any kind of collaboration and conversations we can have to assist our business community. I'm also being the SBDC director. We serve almost 200 clients a year, and the number one um, issue facing our small and large businesses is housing. And, and workforce, and we work very diligently on both of those. So, thank you for your, for your time. Thank you, Mr. Leahy. Is there anyone else that would like to address the planning commission this evening regarding ADUs or the proposed changes? Hi there, my name is Jen Munson. Uh, I live at 864-8th Street. I just wanted to register my support for um, the notion of ADUs, uh, specifically as it um, pertains to tiny homes. Um, and this is uh, homes typically under 100 square feet. Uh, I'm a working professional, such that it is. I, I work for the Department of Human Services, and my wife works for OHSU in pediatric scheduling. Um, we can hardly afford housing as it is. We are currently renters, and in fact, my wife had to take on a second job um, at uh, Astoria Co-op. 
so unfortunately she can't be here tonight. <coughs> but um, we're interested in creative solutions, and uh, um, tiny homes can be built to meet a historical aesthetic as well as a safety aesthetic. And parking, well, we're happy to be flexible. Uh, you know, uh, as uh, a tiny home may be all we can look forward to as far as housing security goes. So we're here to learn. Um, I'm here to learn. She's here in spirit. Um, what are our options? Uh, you know, we aim to live within our means. Uh, and a tiny home, again, is, is what we can afford. Um, so and we're, we're making this request not just for ourselves, but for those who maybe can't make it here tonight due to various circumstances, folks in our community that also face housing insecurity. Thank you for considering this really important issue, and I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Sure, Fitzpatrick, can I provide maybe a little context to the whole tiny home issue? I'm sorry. Can I provide a little bit of context to the tiny home issue as it relates to accessory dwelling units? Yes. So when the code amendment came forward in 2016 with regards to accessory dwelling units, there was quite a bit of discussion and dialogue about should tiny homes be allowed as accessory dwelling units. In the end, it was determined that tiny homes would not be permitted as accessory dwelling units in the city of Astoria. And that's how our code currently reads. So um, that the issue being brought forward would be considered a, a reconsideration of what um, was discussed back in 2016. Thank you. And, and while we're on the subject, what, what does the city, what is the square footage maximum that the city recognizes as a tiny home? That is a that is a difficult question um, in that um, over time the state of Oregon has been working to develop um, standards in terms of what is or is not a tiny home um, and between the state of Oregon Building Codes Division and Department of Land Conservation and Development they've gotten further than they were in 2016 but there still is some ambiguity as to what truly constitutes a tiny home. Uh, but really at the time what the what the um, planning commission and city council decided is they were not going to allow small residential units on chassis to be brought in as an accessory dwelling unit. Okay. Have they given a range on this square footage, Brett? I don't know where we would have to go and do additional research. Yeah, I would have. I mean, I think it really is a a mechanics of um, how big can you build a unit that can be road legal. So um, there are, of course, height, width, and length standards um, that would qualify in terms of what is mobile to be on a chassis. Thank you. Ms. Thank you, Mr. Mayor, Mr. President, may I? Well, Ms. Fryer, Ms. Fryer may have a little bit of Try to provide some thought. Sure. <clears throat> it was my, it's my recollection that, our, that in 2016, when we talked about this before, that the primary concern wasn't necessarily that it came in on wheels because it was intended to be put on a foundation or a slab, but it was the construction method used because they were built to RV standards as opposed to our building code. 
And so I think that seems like it might still be up in the air in terms of um, something that arrives on wheels wouldn't meet our building code because it's constructed differently. Would so. that be the same for a manufactured home conversation that we heard for earlier? Yeah, I was going to ask for this, just some distinctions, the definitions of manufactured, tiny home, and modular homes. Right. So, um, so I would like to um, try to shed some light on this. So a tiny home can be stick built, it can come on a chassis, or it can be a modular home. So it can be any of those three different types of product. Typically a modular home is built, can be built to either manufactured home standards or stick built standards. It depends on the modular product. Um, I know of one particular um, modular home in product here in Oregon that can be built either way and you specify when you order it which way you want it built. It comes on a flatbed in one to however many pieces you decide to get in terms of square footage. Um, the minimum square footage that they, that this particular model modular home product provides, the smallest one is 400 square feet. The largest can be as big as your imagination. Um, the typical tiny home is around 100 square feet to 400 square feet um, in the research that I've done. A manufactured home can be any size as well. It's just built to not the building code standard, but the manufactured home standard. And then the tiny homes that are on a chassis typically are built to the RV standard. And so there are different standards for building code issues. The city of Cannon Beach allows modular homes that are built to um, the stick built standard, but they do not allow the other types of homes. Um, and manufactured homes typically are required to be allowed um, in single family, um, anywhere a single family dwelling is allowed, but that doesn't mean that you have to allow a manufactured accessory dwelling unit. I hope that's clear. You have some choices. Answer the questions for Great. Anybody else like to address the Planning Commission this evening? <clears throat> I have a, uh, a topic that's um, kind of tangentially related to what housing, the housing issues. Is um, it related to what we have not discussed in part? Okay. Um, then we can save that for okay. a public comment. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Can I just follow up with mine versus the, the mobile tool? Sure, if you would step yeah, up the microphone and then again state your name and address for the record. Okay. Um, Cheryl Matson, the manufacturer versus mobile versus tiny home issue. Um, I think one of the things is, is tiny homes can be mobile. You can pull those down a freeway where a manufactured home for certain, mine will not be towed. It will be left there, it will become a permanent structure. The difference is, is it saves me having it being built off-site 
and being brought in versus a contractor building it on site. If I had a contractor building it on site, it's going to cost me twice as much as a manufacturer building it off site. And my understanding is, is there is a seal of approval that the city has that once I get that from you guys, we're good to go. So it's just making sure that the wheel differentiating type deal is where the problem's coming in, is my understanding. Great. Thank you. Thank you for the clarification, Ms. Madison. So, how would you like to go about going through some of these issues? Um, let's see. So, oops. There we go. The consider items here. Um, or no, those aren't the right ones, sorry. Um, well, yes, the last one about workforce housing. Um, so you don't have any code before you tonight, but um, with regard to single room occupancy type dwellings within, say, a historic building, um, is that something that you would be willing to consider? Um, as a permitted use maybe in in the downtown in C4, C3, um, maybe even R3 in a more intense um, building. So Ms. Fryer, let me provide a little more context to the single room occupancy issue. For many years, the Norblad Hotel was a single room occupancy hotel in our community meaning that there were people that lived there on a longer period of time um, and had baths down the hall um, and it was more of a residential hotel. Over time, um, the uh, Norblad has transitioned more into hotel rooms and um, I know within the last, about a year ago, there still were some single room occupancy units in the center of the building where people resided in that uh, that building with a, a shared kitchen down the hall. Um, I don't know whether um, those have been, have been transitioned out or not, but I know that at least we have had those within the downtown um, historically in our community. So really kind of the question is, is, do you wish to be able to move forward on having code amendments to better codify that use uh, within certain areas. Thank you. Commissioners, who would like to start? Mr. Moore. Thank you, Mr. President. Uh, I would be interested if there's a large demand in terms of buildings that uh, would be suitable for such single room occupancy um, modes here in Astoria. I have no idea how many structures that would appeal to, or um, but definitely in the, in the denser zoning, I think it's something to think about. Um, would you like me to comment on the list of questions for the, the uh, 
code amendments, the proposed code amendments, I like. Um, and, and I would note for the Planning Commission's record, they, the items Ms. Ms. Fryer highlighted under consider, those are really, those are going to be a, she was highlighting that to provide context in terms of what was in the housing study. There's going to have to be a much, another. Okay, um, so you don't want us saying we like this idea, let's explore that tonight. Or yeah, no, in terms of the, in terms of the consider bullets, that was to provide context. That is going to be a whole nother discussion later on down the line. Many of those items um, under the consider bullets were part of the Planning Commission's and City Council's discussion the last time that we dealt with accessory dwelling units. And I will tell you that it truly sidetracked, it is a wildly controversial issue within our community. And what at least staff is wanting to do is be able to get through some of these other issues first and then we'll come back some of the issues dealing with um, density and some of the, those those elements at a later time. So specifically, are you talking about the list of like eliminate minim minimum primary unit area? That list, the so, article two. No, if you look at the um, countywide housing strategies list, there is the one. Um, right now, we're we're looking at the needed workforce housing for working people. The different types of definitions of housing, um, the very last two bullets, is really what I kind of want to focus on right this second, and then we'll get to the other ADU questions. We'll backtrack we'll back yes. to that, okay. If that's okay with you. Oh, sure. Uh, so yeah, I'm interested in pursuing that further uh, in, the, in the dense areas, R3 and C. So. Commissioner Price. Okay, I have a number of questions. Uh, the first is, what sort of communication has there been between the city and Salem about this, about Salem um, requiring all cities to meet these standards that really are more applicable to the I-5 corridor? Um, I'll tell you, at the League of Oregon Cities Conference um, this last year, there were a number of communities that were unhappy when this was presented by a Department of Land Conservation and Development representative. The Department of Land Conservation and Development representative said, um, we are presenting what the elected officials to the state of Oregon have approved. Was that story a part of that conversation? Um, I will tell you that this was a housing issue discussion that uh, came up and morphed and went through, in my opinion, pretty, I mean, pretty quickly, but um, it was, um, but with a lot of the discussion, it's not relevant to us as a community because we're not one of 10,000 people. I'll tell you there are a lot of other communities that are, um, and, and I'll tell you the population applicability range actually came down during the legislative session. Do you can do you know whether our representatives voted in favor of, of this these bills? I do not know the answer that. to that. Okay. So I, I will tell you that right now um, staff is looking at um, we have a law that has been passed and we're now moving it forward saying we have to do this or else what happens is 
um, a state ordinance takes an effect automatically and trumps our code, um, regardless of what it says. I'm aware, but one can do these things under protest or not. Uh, and, and it's important to let the legislators know, you know, what the local communities feel. But uh, what is co-housing? Co-housing is an interesting concept where um, it's it's like a um, like a compound, if you will. So maybe four houses of different sizes, meeting different needs. Um, and typically, there would be a, an older person living in one of the units, a younger person living in another unit, um, a family in another unit. So they're sized for different types of people. And they're, they're typically for um, people who are of a lower income because you can get a better um, economy of scale by living in close proximity to one another and sharing um, common elements. So would the, would the Astra Hotel be considered a co-housing building? No. No. Okay. So it has to be an actual compound with separate units? <coughs> typically it is, yes. So co-housing, and, and typically they, they own the land in common and that the units themselves are separate. So let me put a, another kind of spin on to it that was looked at locally. There were a number of senior individuals in Astoria, um, I'm gonna say probably about eight, 10 years ago, who were looking at this concept to where, um, <laughs> to, to, where um, and to where they were looking at purchasing property where you could have a number of people who are um, senior citizens, um, maybe retired, and they are able to continue to age in place as a community. And so that uh, there's not a caregiver, but the community itself takes care of one another. And there were a group of individuals in Astoria who were looking for property uh, to be able to, to accomplish this. And that, that's, that would be considered co-housing? Yes. Okay. Um, Barbara, you mentioned, <coughs> excuse me, uh, and I, I didn't write down what it was. There was a, a 2002 date as a sort of a dividing line between one thing and the other, and, and I, I, don't, I can't remember what that was or why that date was picked. Yes. Um, there are some... Um, what? Okay. There we go. So the third and fourth bullet. So one of them is January first, nineteen ninety, in the institutional zone, and the other one is um, two thousand and two in the A three zone. And that's because um, in those years, there was a change in the permissions and any single family dwelling that existed prior to that date was allowed to continue, but no new homes are allowed in those zones. And so we want to be sure that if those single family dwellings, those owners of those single family dwellings, if they want to 
do an accessory dwelling unit that we would permit that. Okay. Um, do you know how many ADU permits have been taken out since the 2004 ADU amendment was passed or perhaps more recently since we um, <coughs> made some changes a couple of years ago? Um, I don't have those figures off the top of my head. I can have them for you at our next meeting. And um, is there any data anywhere supporting the fact uh, ADUs as um, creating affordability within a community? It is hit and miss um, in terms of affordability because it really depends on um, the location, the um, size of the accessory dwelling unit, um, and what the owner chooses to charge for it. So um, it's a free market, so it depends on location, really. Right, and, and size seems like an important uh, thing for us to be considering as well. Since, since the big word here is affordability, but um, none of the communities that I'm aware of, ADUs, actually really do create affordability because they are expensive and, and they're, you know, they're quite nice places to live. Um, but, uh, and, and so my last question uh, is, do you, do you see that any of this is in um, what, opposition to our comprehensive plan? That as it exists now in terms of livability and other sorts of things that, that um, certainly on council a few land use issues came and whereas maybe in the development code things weren't quite specific one could certainly hang one's hat on, on the community plan, uh, on the comprehensive plan and um, and without having done the sort of research I think that would require I haven't done it had, had ch uh, chance um, it seems that there might be some issues there. Have you had a chance to, to take a look at that? I have, and I've looked into specifically about density. And um, while the density of um, a particular area is defined in the, the comprehensive plan and in the development code, um, adding an accessory dwelling unit while we might think that it's changing the density of that area, the Department of Land Conservation and Development has said that we cannot consider that as a change in density. And so from a comprehensive plan standpoint, yes, it does make a difference, but from a state mandate standpoint, we can't consider it. Thank you, and thank you, Mr. Chairman, for allowing me for uh, these clarifications and just, I mean, on, I think if, if it's a specific issue that we're looking at right now, is it SROs in historic buildings in uh, C3, C4, R3? Um, I don't have a particular problem with that if, it, if the neighbors don't. Mr. President, can I ask a follow up question related to a question Commissioner Price asked? I would allow that, Commissioner Moore. <laughs> Thank you. Could you? Uh, explain what the difference between co-housing and cottage housing would be, because our development code does have cottage housing that would be, I mean, is it the same thing or similar, or how would they differ? Um, typically, co-housing, there's a relationship between the um, people in that development 
they, they sign agreements or um, they commit to caring for one another in some way, shape, or form um, in co-housing. In a cottage development, it's um, each individual lot stands on its own. In a co-housing development. So a cottage, wouldn't, you wouldn't have four structures on one tax lot? They would all have their own tax lot? Right. Well, and, and many times in co-housing, all of the units are owned in common by an overarching legal entity that uh, people then belong to or buy into. With a cottage development, many times those cottages are condominiums, essentially. Right, it's where, a very detached condo. Right, it's a detached okay. condo where each so structure is owned outright by one individual and the grounds themselves are owned in common um, by the association of owners. Okay, thanks. And what is it that prohibits um, co-housing now in our code? I mean, I understand it's not explicitly permitted, but... We, we typically don't allow for, say, four or more um, dwelling units on a particular piece of property unless it's in the R3. Um, so it's it's a different type of um, concept because it's, it's held in common ownership. Um, and so um, it's, it's a different animal. So it's just something that you might want to think about. And they would have, there would be desire to have it in a a, an area of lower density where we wouldn't allow a fourplex normally. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. A lot of times also we are having to look at what the definition of a family is. <laughs> and a family, our definition allows for a certain number of unrelated individuals, five, to, to be um, included in one family. That's, but six unrelated people all of a sudden does not become a family. And with a co-housing situation, you may have more than six on one line. Okay. Which camera line would you like to? On SROs, yeah. Yeah, um, I'm also happy to, um, I'm comfortable with the idea of having um, SROs and um, um, Dormitories, something this group kind of housing, um, especially the downtown area. I think that I've been in some of the Norblad um, units, and the kind of people that I know that have um, rented those units have been um, people that work in the service industry. They're really there. It's a great location for that kind of housing, and something with the Norblad standards. Um, um, yeah, it was comfortable. I think it was a positive effect, and I think that um, yeah, a lot of people really enjoy that level of kind of communal living, not having too much responsibility. Um, I think it would be a great fit for our downtown. Thank you, Mr. Cameron. Uh, um, I would agree that uh, opening up lots of creative solutions to the range of housing challenges we have is good, and moving forward in that direction, I fully support. Great. Thank you, Mr. Corcoran. Commissioner Womack. Well, I'm in agreement with everyone up here. I, I agree with the SRO uh, in the downtown district. Can, can I ask staff how many, if that's been uh, in the past, have we had particular interest in, in that that hasn't been allowed in the past that might have interest in the future? 
Um, right now we have um, one entity that is looking at doing an SRO and um, we have one entity that's looking at doing a dorm. And then we have another entity that would like to do, um, to look at a bed and breakfast allowing for um, women over 65. So a retirement community, if you will, for um, seniors. So, um, and because it's a bed and breakfast where the restrooms are not, um, they're held in common, they're not in each bedroom, they want to limit it to females so that there isn't a, a, um, a gender issue. So are these creative solutions for existing, existing structures or were these reduced structures? All of the ones that people have talked about right now are existing structures. And I fully support a moving forward with that. And I'm in agreement with my fellow commissioners. Sorry. So, uh, one of the things I think that Ms. Fryer was going to be asking, you know, was she kind of broke it down, really kind of focusing on the SRO question, and some of the commissioners went forward and started talking about some of the other creative issues like she mentioned dealing with dormitory types. Can we extrapolate that and say that the commission is willing to at least look and consider all of those various housing types as, as Ms. Fryer had mentioned? Because um, some of you focused just on the, as was asked, on the SRO issue, but some of you expanded further, and that was actually going to be a follow-up question in there just get confirmation that was the case, then maybe that could help move things along. I've seen everyone nod their heads except for Commissioner Price, so. Um, so again, just clarifying, we're talking about C3, C4, maybe R3, or yes, R3. R3 would be one that we'd be looking at as well. And uh, dormitory, again, this is, uh, well, I mean, helping hands, is that, that's not a dormitory? No, it would be really more of, uh, intended for if, if there was, you know, uh, someone who wanted to be able to provide a space to be able to house individuals who are working in the community mm -hmm. and uh, provide it in a way that maybe there is a communal kitchen area mm -hmm. where everyone dines together. Um, they may have communal um, shower and restroom facilities so, so this is more like uh, what has been being built uh, out um, enhanced warranted for the Perhaps, for the yes, that, yes. So, um, I have another question. What the heck was it? Uh, oh, are these outright uses? Are these conditional uses? Um, that would be part of the discussion. What, what we're looking for is we could, if you're saying, hey, we want to look at this more, staff could come back and provide with provide the commission with some recommendations and the commission could say, hey, we we like this as permitted, we like this as conditional, and move back and forth. We're just saying, how far do you want to go with, with all this? Because we are we are receiving inquiries, and and because we're receiving inquiries, and, and it really is to address and deal with some of the housing crisis issues that we're seeing in our community, um, asking you how would you like us to proceed 
on trying to be able to provide clarity. Have you heard from the Downtown Association? Uh, has there been any communication with them about this, or this um, is the first public at their last uh, At their board meeting last week, I informed the Downtown Association board that this was going to be, um, that these issues were going to be discussed tonight. Okay. Um, well, just to. They do have one board member in, in here tonight. They do. Which one? Well, why don't we allow Commissioner Price to finish and then. Okay, so SROs, C3, C4, <coughs> no, I, I, this is a, a big change for Astoria. And so I do think that neighbors need to be asked about these things. Could, could I ask a So maybe that makes them a conditional use. How, how does this speak to micro-housing, which I know is currently not allowed in the city as well, for a developer to come in and potentially do a, a project that would be a micro-housing? We would have a community floor, a community kitchen, community area where these small micro-units would be allowed. Is that something we're going to be speaking to as well, or is that a secondary conversation? I would say that that's very similar to an SRO, so we can write it broadly enough so that um, it it encompasses that if that's something that um, you want to explore tonight. Um, we're we're open to all kinds of options, um, and we really we're looking at these three types of housing um, because we do have people who are interested in them, um, but we do want to be comprehensive enough so that. If we do have somebody coming in in the near future, that we can accommodate that. Um, Chair Fitzpatrick, can I go back to Commissioner Price's question about um, conditional versus permitted use yeah. on some of these uses? So I'll tell you that those have been some of the dialogues that even staff has had. I mean, not even having made a decision yet, but one of the things we've all we've looked at is um, is it also. Um, a possible thing to, if they are permitted that there are development standards which are specified up front by the uh, by the code which says if it's permitted here are some things that must be accomplished so it sets an expectation right from the beginning um, so that's another idea that's been toyed around with with, with staff um, we don't have a recommendation yet but I, I think it's something that we would be, we would like to be able to bring to you um, in the future, if you're willing to consider this, um, to be able to look at the, the various scenarios that are used in different communities. Thank you. Thank you. Commissioner Parker, uh, a couple questions. Um, again, supportive for all the reasons uh, articulated earlier for the need for different kinds and solutions like described. I'm getting a little hung up though um, with, with the expectations. So I think I'll circle back to expectations and the distinction of construction type between tiny homes and uh, the, the wheeled uh, modular home. Are we, is that still part of this conversation? Not at this point. Okay. We're, we're kind of focused on the whole issue of, a, I'm gonna call it a classification of group housing, which could include SROs, um, could include dormitories, could include some of these 
facilities like that is really kind of what we're Got trying it. to do. Then more narrowly then, I like how the last conversation ended about having set expectations, allowing having it permissible with requirements and standards that would be commensurate with other living dwellings nearby and other appropriate considerations. Any other comments or questions for staff before we take a recess? All right, well, we will. <laughs> Commissioner Fitzpatrick, can we say that um, we have, I think we have some good direction on this issue, and then Ms. Fryer can then focus on more of the accessory dwelling unit issues after your recess. Great, thank you. It's 7.38, we are going to recess, we'll be back at 7.43. We are back in session. And for the record, it is 7.44 p.m. Next up, Planner Friday. Thank you. So on your screen, um, there is the additional considerations for the accessory dwelling units above and beyond what was included in your packet. So the first one is eliminating, potentially eliminating the minimum size of the primary dwelling unit. In the packet, I did eliminate the minimum size, but then I thought maybe you might not want that eliminated. So it is not mandated. It is recommended <coughs> to eliminate the minimum size of the primary dwelling unit so that you can um, allow an accessory dwelling unit for any, any single family dwelling. Do you folks have a, a feeling about it? A preference? Commissioners, do we have any thoughts or comments on this? Doesn't appear that anyone feels strongly one way or the other. Oh, yeah, I was waiting for permission to speak, but yes, uh, I certainly do. Um, I would like to see the elimination of the minimum size of the primary unit as long as the uh, any accessory unit is tied, either limited in size or tied to the primary unit size, one way or another. So you couldn't build a 2,300 square foot ADU for a 400 square foot primary unit, if that makes sense. So the sizes are compatible. So as long as we eliminate, the, if we eliminate the primary size, then just make sure any accessory, you know, detached accessory unit is some percentage of the primary unit. As long as we keep that in, then I'm fine. Okay. And we'll get to those percentages later on. Right. Um, and minimum or maximum size. Great. We'll talk about that in a minute. Any other thoughts on that issue? That's not appear so. Okay. How about um, detached ADUs? Um, do you like the DLCD de definition that's in the um, model code on page? Um, Sorry. Um, page five of the model code. 
so it talks about um, the variety of housing types, or not housing types, but um, attached, detached, and um, the model code, the DLCD model code, it's the one with the picture on the front? Yes. Maybe six then, sorry. So on page six, it talks about um, definitions for um, what is an accessory dwelling. We can either go with something like that or we can modify what we have where it talks about creation of a unit. Um, right now, it's it talks about um, a variety of, um, that you can only have an internal unit or a, um, I, th I believe that it's, it's a, um, the detached unit has additional requirements to it right now, but in the future we couldn't do that. I, I'm sorry, so are you asking us if we want to uh, have one unit or two units? No, 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 the definition. The definition. Yeah, the very end of page oh, seven. Sorry. Definition. Okay. I'm fine with that definition. Okay. The next item is um, information on um, manufactured, modular, prefabricated shipping containers, um, et cetera, type of housing. Um, we can talk about um, minimum size, maybe as 100 square feet, um, 200 square feet, whatever your pleasure might be. Maximum size would be based on the percentage that we talk about later. Um, but in terms of, do you wanna allow a manufactured home um, of a minimum size of say 200 square feet, 100 square feet, 400 square feet. Um, what do you think might fit with the character of neighborhoods? Um, same with modular. Modular can be the manufactured code or stick built code. Um, prefabricated can be the same way. Um, shipping containers. Um, they're doing some amazing things with shipping containers now. If it's not in a historic district, could it be allowed in Astoria? Is that something that you folks feel you're ready for? Or is that something that is not going to fly here? So just kind of getting the feel for what type of um, manufactured modular prefab you might be willing to look at. Thank you. Having already formed strong opinions on all these, I'd be happy to go. Uh, I would support manufactured, modular, and prefabricated. I'm uncomfortable with RV standards, so arriving, um, putting an RV standard home I'm still uncomfortable with that, but I'm certainly willing to have more conversations about that. But stick-built, um, manufactured or modular are fine with me. 
I don't have any concerns about minimum size. If you want to live in an 80 square foot modular home, good luck. Yeah, but that's fine. Um, it would be very tiny, but I, I don't. I'm not concerned about minimum size. I'm, I am concerned about maximum size as it relates to the primary unit, as I already stated. Commissioner Walmack. The 80 square feet is pretty small. Commissioner Walmack. Uh, so uh, I agree with the, the limitations and size. I'm, I'm not sure what we should what we should be considering for size limitations, meaning size small, large, or what the consideration would be for design of putting these. I do agree with uh, having standards of stick built um, design versus RV standards simply. They, otherwise, we're you know, from the longevity of whatever these, these homes are going to be. But um, what what is the um, what's the impetus of the size and square footage for for putting that in, into the code? Um, well, you heard some testimony tonight of someone who is interested in a 100 square foot dwelling. You heard someone who has a 400 square foot manufactured home that they'd like to use as an, as an accessory dwelling unit. So um, we don't currently have a minimum size. We just don't allow um, the park models here in Astoria. So, and we don't allow the manufactured home as an accessory dwelling unit. So it's it's. Do you want to allow the manufactured modular prefab? Sounds like you do, some of you do. Um, and then it's just a matter of do you want it, do you want a minimum size at all? So um, Canon Beach requires at least 1,000 square feet for the the um, any of those types of homes. Um, I'm not saying that that's what you might want to have, but do you want to consider a minimum size? So let me even ask, I mean, and provide a little more context. One of the issues that came up with the application of using a park model manufactured home as an accessory dwelling unit is we have a prohibition of manufactured homes under, I believe it's a thousand square feet already. For, and that was the intent on a single family lot. So when, so when those provisions were put into place, the, as Ms. Fryer said earlier, um, the city by state law has to allow manufactured homes on single family lots. But the state said, you cities, you can establish um, design guidelines. Um, I wasn't here when those were put into place. That, that really became a, an issue probably before I even I, um, became a planner in the state of Oregon. But one of the things that communities were trying to get away from was the older concept of what a manufactured home was, which is a skinny, long, narrow box. So for instance, we require all manufactured homes in the city on individual lots to be double wide so that they look more like a um, stick-built home. They have more of the form of a stick-built home. 
what we would need to do is if the Planning Commission wanted to allow for things like manufactured homes to be accessory dwelling units, we'd have to put some exceptions in the code which would allow smaller manufactured home park models to be used as ADUs, but maybe not on a single family lot by themselves. Can you tell us what a park model is? Park model is a is a I'm gonna call it a smaller kind of square square rectangular like what was okay. what was what was shown um, um, where it has a different form than the the older um, long narrow manufactured home. As far as construction, are the permitted forms the double wides, for example, to the stick built? Design standard? No. So, so manufactured home is so manufactured homes are a state of Oregon approved housing type. Um, and um, if someone buys a manufactured home, it is going to be constructed and inspected at a plant where it is built, and it is going to have a label with a state of Oregon certificate on it. And so our building official is going to be looking at, does that manufactured home have its state certification on the side of it? <coughs> and if so, our building official does no inspection of the interior of the unit. Um, they look at you know how it's put together, but um, a manufactured home can come in a part model form, it can come in a single wide form, it could come in a triple wide, it can come in a quadruple wide. I mean, there are so many different building forms that can do it, but they're all built to a different state of Oregon legal standard. So there's no way to require a stick built standard of a manufactured home in the city no, of Astoria? No. A manufactured home is a housing type. And and we do we do have to permit manufactured homes by state law in single-family residential zones. Would it be possible to have all uh, ADUs go through the Design Review Committee for appropriateness to various uh, design considerations and guidelines? So, the Department of Land Conservation sure, and Development... Oh. Oh. <laughs> the Department of Land Conservation and Development said that you can include design standards. Um, so you can have clear and objective standards. You could potentially require design review in certain circumstances. Um, say you um, have a historic district and you, or a historic home adjacent to this particular proposed accessory dwelling unit. It could go through historic design review, historic landmarks commission. In terms of design review commission, um, I think that the DLCD would rather have clear and objective standards that could be done on a staff level so that it's more permitted than having to go through a hearing. Because um, since the, we can't address the stick bill versus not, it comes down to an aesthetics only sort of consideration, I guess, and so that's why I brought that up. Well, you, you, can, you, you can deal with the stick bill or not by not allowing manufactured homes. I mean, so that's what's in place now. But I thought I heard you say that we have to. You, you have to on the state of Oregon says that for 
single family residences. We cannot give, we can't say no to a manufactured home construction. The state of Oregon has not said we have to allow manufactured homes as accessory dwelling units. I see. Thank you for that clarification. Uh, thank you. Um, well, actually, I'm about to go visit a friend in uh, Palm Springs who lives in a manufactured home, mobile home park, but you would never know it that. All, they all look beautiful and they're very different. They all have different facades, so they can be made quite nice. Um, but so I don't really have a problem with manufactured homes. I certainly don't have a problem with modular homes. I'd like to have one myself, the ones that are built to stick built. Um, tiny homes, I think that's a different situation. On the minimum, so, so, so I liked that you said we can have different standards for historic neighborhoods and districts than not. Um, I, more along the fence about the minimum size, I would tend to say yes, like 150 square feet. Um, because, but certainly not much bigger because there is an equity problem with this whole issue in that there are many, many people who cannot, who, who don't have room to put an ADU on, who might like to have the added income, don't have a dry enough or high enough basement, just can't do it. So you sort of leave it to people who live in neighborhoods who have much bigger yards and bigger basements and all of that. And so I'd like to include some equity in there somewhere. So uh, I would like there to be a difference between historic neighborhoods and non-historic neighborhoods. And, uh, and otherwise, I'm pretty much okay with most of it. Commissioner Parker. Shipping containers was, is sort of the, out of the norm. Um, might that, that trigger, again, a design review for something as unusual? Although it would be interesting to ban shipping containers in the industrial area. <laughs> um, so as far as shipping containers being a unique thing, could they trigger a design review? We could talk to DLCD to see if we could require that. I, I, I imagine that it would be allowed because it is such a unique product. Um, the modular prefab and manufactured are a different type product. The, the shipping container requires a lot more um, design and um, structural consideration to create that unit. So I can see how we could, we can make the argument with DLCD and I'd be willing to do that if that's what you- Of all the options that could go wrong, it seems like the shipping um, earlier in your presentation, you asked a question about a number of ADUs like per single family house. And so if someone could have an ADU within their current structure, um, but then there's the option of could they also add an external structure for a second ADU on that property? Correct. I did ask that question. Correct. And, and that seems like too much, I guess. Maybe um, our housing issue is a concern. Maybe that would be the next phase um, to look at something that with that much intensity with consideration to neighbors just the number of cars and whatnot that that would do uh, that's all thank you commissioner for correct commissioner Cameron um yeah i think 
like we're pretty much in agreement about these types of homes. My only, yeah, kind of automatic consideration with manufactured homes is, is aesthetic, and it seems like there's enough variety in what they produce now, and that we can, um, I'm confident that we can come up with some design standards that make them, you know, look right for our town. Um, and, and yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad that we, I'm glad that it seems um, feasible to, to create a way to make shipping containers possible, but not as kind of automatic and as easy to do as the rest of them. Because I think also it's, it can be a really interesting idea, might look really great in certain parts of our town, but is, is you know, kind of really another step beyond the other kind of structures that we're talking about. And I, yeah, and I don't have any concerns about minimum, um, about minimum sizes. I think that like the minimum size that someone considers they'd be willing to live in is, is gonna be, it's going to be fine. Um. Thank you, Commissioner Camerlotta. I have a follow-up. Um, I, I don't think design review is necessary for ADUs, except for historic properties, where, where historic landmarks would already have, they would already have jurisdiction over a, a building constructed and um, for a neighborhood that doesn't have design review, I don't think it's necessary. Would you have a design review for an ADU for a house that doesn't have a design review? That seems yeah. silly. So um, just for, and wouldn't a structure built on a historic property already be subject to historic landmarks, right? Yes, that's or correct. Or adjacent or within, so we should be covered by it. That, that's correct, however, um, for um, shipping containers, I heard that you'd like to, if you if you permit them at all, you'd like to consider um, only if you can go through some design process. Is that correct? I wasn't interested in shipping containers, so I didn't. You don't want shipping that containers at all. I'm also not specifically keen on shipping containers at this point. Uh, I, I do have a question. Um, from the design standpoint, just for clarification. So if I wanted to put a shed in my backyard, 400 square feet, I could go get a modular four foot, 400 square foot shed from Home Depot, stick it in my backyard and do that. I understand there's no specific design because I'm not living in it, correct? For, so we're just trying to speak to the aesthetics. That is incorrect. Is it, so I can't do that? I can't well, so there- Temporary structure, I'm saying. Um, there is no such thing as temporary structure under our code. Okay. So, 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 if there, if there, if it's historic, if your property is historic, and you go to Home Depot, you still have to go to Historic Landmarks Commission to get design review approval. There is a provision that, um, and I can't remember what the building code exemption is. It used to be a hundred or one hundred fifty square feet. Two hundred square feet. Yeah. Okay. That um, you can uh, get a structure under, if it's 200 square feet, according to Oregon building code, and put it on your property without a building permit. However, you must also at the same time meet building setbacks, lot coverage requirements, and all other zoning provisions of the code. So many times people do go, and they're like, oh, I don't need a building permit. They go buy a 150 square foot tough shed, they put it right on their property line, their neighbors call and complain to the city. We go out and tell them, 
you need to have a 20-foot setback on this side and a 5-foot setback here. And by the way, you have too much lot coverage, you need to get a variance. Um, and, and they're like, but I didn't need a building permit. However, you still have to comply with zoning regs. Right. And, and the square footage uh, of the lot coverage is the same consideration from, from those types of, from the ADU standpoint, it's, or is that another conversation we're going to be having? We're going to have that conversation in a few items. So can I just clarify, thank you, can I just clarify that, that, that the state now has, or maybe the city, greater regulations for a tough shed than it does for an ADU? That's what we're basically looking at? No, no, yeah. I mean, no, it's, it's saying that, um, well, if it is a structure over 200 square feet, it requires a building permit. The state of Oregon Building Code Division, which sets building permits as any of those, you know, modular, you know, tough shit building, you know, doesn't require a permit, but there is the whole thing of um, the Tiny homes, which are on chassis, have to be built to an RV standard because they have to be road ready. So ODOT comes into play and Department of Transportation and all of those things. And just one more thing on the um, shipping containers. I'm actually fascinated by what people are doing with them and, um, and think they go with the gritty part of Astoria. But the problem with them is that even tiny homes and manufactured homes, they are all built to certain codes that for livability. So for a shipping container, we would have to write code for that so that they have proper means of egress and windows and all of that kind of stuff if we wanted to allow. Because you can't just put a shipping container in your backyard and call it good, right? Correct. Yeah. Correct. Okay. Thank you. And, and I, would, I would also say, Commissioner Price, you know, that Part of the difference in a tough shed is its use is for storing garden equipment or stuff like that. Building code, whenever there's anyone residing in a structure, building code you know, comes into play as well. So I mean, sure. yeah. Thank you. Commissioner Parker. Additional comment, your reference to 200 square feet triggering a building permit. I mean, that might be a number then that for ADU size might be useful. So if you're gonna have anything trigger a building permit if it was 150 square feet, would that somehow be under the radar? No, because it's going to be lived at. Okay, very good, sort of like you just said as far as tax residency. The other thing following up on design review for ADUs, not in historic areas, I think that is, and I'm not arguing too strongly, but I think the distinction is when you're building another building on a parcel with the primary structure on it, my hope would be that the new building would be somehow hmm, symbiotic with that existing structure. And so not put like neo-colonial structure next to you know, some kind of something else. And I guess that would be the concern have, have about you ever driven in, in, in pardon? Have you ever driven through Alderbrook? Uh, <laughs> and so I guess trying to keep with the code, spirit of the code to make that be better. So anyway, uh, I guess that's all I have to say. Yeah, we, are, we already have design standards for HLC, I think. Prior, you want to talk? I mean, what outside of HLC, what is permissible by DLC? But permissible within the city, and I'm saying um, appropriate to the existing structure. And and 
we can write some design standards that um, you can see at your next meeting and you can kind of get a feeling of whether you like them or not and we can make them administrative or we can make them well I think that the majority of them would have to be administrative but um, we can talk about that at your next meeting if you'd like me to come back with some design guidelines as well I, I would like that. I would feel more comfortable with some um, guidelines or standards or design guidelines or standards for manufactured homes regardless of where they're being placed. And I'm not comfortable with shipping containers at this point. Okay. I liked the way that you phrased that. And I would also comment for those in the audience who may have heard certain questions asked uh, more than once it's, uh, I've been in the housing industry for almost 40 years, and these are things that for 30-something years, we tried to get approved, and the states and local entities were adamantly against and made it clear that those sorts of things would never happen. Uh, and now we're here, again, I'm trying to wrap my head around the fact that the state is telling us that we have to allow something that they have throughout my career and before said absolutely not ever. So um, we're trying to get used to some of the ideas that are being put upon us here. Okay, so the next item is um, we currently prohibit homestay lodging in the ADUs. Do you want to continue that? I see general nods, yes. So yes. Okay, um, what about do you, would you like me to continue to explore the idea of um, not triggering additional transportation requirements for um, an ADU? As that appears to be a mandate, I think we should. Okay. And that means parking? No, that means, um, like, if, if you are the, the way the code is written now, any dwelling unit, above a certain number would trigger a wider um, half street improvement. Um, one of the things in talking with engineering is they would like to say um, that they would like to continue to have um, some oversight but not, not the trigger for a half street improvement but maybe a car car park a uh, parking space where um, the street width is not wide enough for um, on-street parking and safe travel. So they would like the safety issue to continue. And so I would continue to work with engineering so that we could write something that allows them to still provide that safety component, but not to um, trigger a full half street improvement or a full street improvement when you hit, when you add an accessory dwelling unit. Does that make sense? So that's a yes too. Okay, how about um, maximum lot coverage? That's one that um, I heard a little bit about that you wanna really discuss this. Um, our current requirement is 40% maximum lot coverage. Um, do you want to change that? The um, DLCD guidance. One zone is 
Isn't it different for R1 through 3? It is. It is. But in general, I'm, I'm going to say 40%, okay? For R3, I believe it is. Um, do we want to look at changing that percentage when somebody builds an ADU? I would be interested in seeing maybe a graphic of how that would okay. work on a 50 by 100 lot. I can do that for your next meeting. Yeah, you need to accommodate that ADU. Yes. But not necessarily for everything that somebody might want to do in their property, but just to accommodate an ADU. Is that distinction available to the staff when that comes up? Sorry, does that distinction, can that be determined? Um, the distinction between the ADU versus some other kind of expansion of a house on the property? Yes, because we can make it specific to ADUs. Um, the, the, there are two more to be considered. One is, do you want to allow two units on a single family? And I think you talked about that a little bit, but I just want to make sure that I heard you correctly, that you do not want to allow two units if one is internal, that you don't want to allow a detached if one is internal, correct? I would like to stay with one and see how, how that works before we consider allowing two ADU. Great. I, oh. Am I the only one who wouldn't object to that? Is that so? A house that has an internal ADU is no different than that same house if it wasn't an internal ADU and we would allow a, parking, a detached ADU on that same structure. So I'm fine if, if there's room for a detached ADU, I say go ahead and build it. And even if there's one inside too, that's great. And my sense is, although we can't limit parking, that densification does increase more of a flow for the neighborhood, and that would just be my observation on that. Just my opinion. I could be outvoted by more than I think you will be. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that we, I very strongly feel that we need to see how the single ADU works over a period of time before we start allowing more units there. Okay, and then the last one is um, modifying the floor area for an internal ADU. So um, current requirements are that um, you can allow an 800 square foot, up to an 800 square foot ADU, or I believe it's 60% of your primary dwelling. Um, whichever is less. So do you want to allow a greater amount if it's internal so that if somebody wants to convert their entire basement or their top floor or one of their floors into an accessory dwelling unit, it doesn't change, it's only for the internal ABU, it's not for an addition or a detached ADU. Do you want to consider that? What's the, the current percentage? I'm sorry. What's the current percentage, 800 square feet or something? Or I believe it's it's 60%. So one could create an internal ADU 60% the size of the building. It's whatever it is. 
whatever's less. So if you had a big house, 800 square feet is the current limit, and you're asking, uh, might we consider bumping that up? I was right. interested in that. I can see that being useful. I would support getting rid of the whatever is less. 60% seems like a good size. I don't know how everybody else feels about that. Other thoughts? I'm in support of changing that as well. Okay, do you have any other thoughts on accessory dwelling units that we didn't cover? It appears that Commissioner Price does. Sorry, I just have uh, two quick questions. One is, I in the quick research that I did, I thought that I saw that uh, the, the state is prohibiting uh, the requirement that one, either the ADU or the primary residence must be owner-occupied. Yes, no? Yes, they're they're eliminating the requirement that the um, accessory dwelling that either one be owner occupied. Yes, that's so correct. How can we prohibit short term rentals in an ADU? We could include that in the short term rental um, legislation that an accessory dwelling unit may not be converted to a short term rental. Which is and, and and then okay, and then just complementary to that is. Um, as I recall the council discussion, you know, you could have your house build an ADU. You could live in the ADU and have the short-term rental be your house. Yes, no? Yes. I mean, but the thing is we can't require, I mean, now someone could build an ADU and have both of those be rental units under current state law. I'm sorry, could you repeat that? Under current state law, a building owner could build an accessory dwelling unit and rent out both the main house and the accessory dwelling unit, that's mandated by state law now. But utilities but, have to be shared. But not yes. for short term. But not for short term. Yeah, I think that's fine. That takes care of our, that's long term housing, that's what we're concerned about. It doesn't have to be owner occupied. And one last and, and, and I will tell you that um, the city council did grandfather, there are some detached um, units which are homestay lodging, but those units were grandfathered. So we do have some of those permitted in the city because they were grandfathered before anything was put in place. Okay, and A, do you still have to be in the back? You can't put one in the front yard. That would be one of the design standards that I would recommend that you, um, that you consider when okay. you see the design standards when I bring them back. And similarly, no two front doors on a house that only has one Correct. That only has one, one front door. I have one comment. Commissioner Moore. I also noticed that you could now rent your house and your ADU and um, remember the requirement that the utilities be, that you have one power meter. Um, would it make sense to remove that requirement? because a building owner might have two separate tenants and they would want their own power bill. One of the reasons why that's in place right now is to try to maintain the single family character so that there aren't additional meters and, and um, electrical boxes um, sure. showing. And I would say if, if we did that, then we would require that power be delivered underground to that ADU, just so it isn't obvious that there's another meter there, but having a meter on the side of the house isn't gonna be blatantly obvious. 
It was just a thought that I noticed and wanted to comment on. Other thoughts or comments? Great, thank you. So let's go on to um, temporary warming shelter. Um, so the temporary warming shelter includes um, changes to Article 1, proposing a new definition. And Article 2, I um, was at a disadvantage because I, I was trying to read somebody else's notes. And so if I got this part wrong, please help me understand what is correct. Um, in terms of permitted outright use, um, in the notes it said AAHC, C4, HR, LS, and S3. So I'm not sure if that's really what you intended, but I'm, I'm, I'm wondering. Um, and then a conditional use in C3, R2, and R3 zoning districts with a maximum of 15 people. And, and Ms. Fry, I think it'd be good for those in the audience to let them know that, that this is actually a code amendment that was initiated by the Planning Commission and this is work, what we're bringing forward is refreshing the planning commission on the work that they had completed at an earlier work session before the city council prioritized other projects, um, being the riverfront vision plan implementation, so this was put on the back burner. So Ms. Fryer is bringing this forward to refresh the planning commission and those in attendance where things left off. Thank you, thank you. So, um, <coughs> It's also um, noted that because these other zones, the third set of zones, are not referenced in the um, permission or the conditional use, they would be prohibited or not permitted um, to have um, a warming shelter in those zones. So what I wanna show you on this slide also is the bluish color, hopefully it comes out okay, the C4, the R2, R3, and R1 are where the places of worship are located today. So um, just so you know, those are the zoning districts where um, places of worship, and that's typically where you see a warming shelter or a public use. Um, so just to give you perspective on where they're located. Um, Article 11 would add the new conditional use standards, and those are on the next page. With a new section that has a purpose, the description, the requirement to operate a maximum of 90 days within a 12-month period, and only from 7 p.m. to 8 a.m and the maximum number of occupants where it's not specified in the previous slide. So it would be one person per 35 square feet of room area. Um, you wanted to have a good neighbor agreement um, for crime watch and garbage um, collection. And then you also identified life safety issues. 
um, weapons. You specified that you wanted fire sprinklers, smoke alarms, carbon monoxide alarms, exits, emergency evacuation plan. You wanted to have somebody available to have to be able to watch for fires that might be um, ignited in the building. You wanted to have annual documentation and notification to emergency facilities. It should be noted though that um, by requiring the fire sprinklers, you would negate the ability of the current warming center to continue because they do not have fire sprinklers. So um, that should be noted. Question, real quick. I, I, I want to be able to provide a little bit more on that. This is a kind of a question that came up along the way. In that the current warming center is a temporary use, they must come before this body each year for a new temporary use permit. And um, Ms. Fryer checked with City Attorney Henningsgaard and he verified that the codes that are in place um, at the time of applying for the temporary use permit application would control. So that, that's where Ms. Fryer is saying that if, if these provisions as presented right now were in place, um, they would not be able to re-up for next year. Question on that? Do I also understand that it's, uh, the facility has been looked at by fire personnel and what, what was the result of that? That's correct. So every year we have an annual inspection as part of the renewal process. And um, the uh, fire chief, the police chief, the building official, and the city planner all meet together and we walk through the facility prior to the first opening. And um, the fire chief found that the, the smoke alarms, the carbon monoxide alarms, the emergency exits, the um, fire extinguishers were all up to date. They had an evacuation plan. They had somebody on as a watch person. And so he felt comfortable with the current um, requirements for the warming center. So, so in addition to that, the, at one point in time, temporary warming shelters um, that did not meet state of Oregon building codes were not allowed. However, the state fire marshal State of Oregon Fire Marshal issued a technical memorandum that says that, um, that outlined if certain provisions are met and if the amount of time does not exceed a certain period of time, a number of days used, if the building did not meet those occupancy requirements for residential use it is not a change of occupancy <clears throat> and so what the current what the warning center is working under today is the state of oregon fire marshals uh, interpretation for warming centers what the planning commission has stated is they wish to up the requirements for fire and life safety above uh, the uh, above the state fire marshal's interpretation. 
Commissioner Price. Thank you. Why, it, why the designation temporary? We do have other, um, yeah, other businesses in town that are open only, you know, probably maybe not even 90 days out of the year, as it turns out. But they don't have to do this. Because our zoning code has a very unique use classification that neither City Attorney Hiddingsgard nor I nor Ms. Fryer have seen, but it is unique to the City of Astoria. And that is, if there is a use that does not follow any of the other use classifications within a zone, they can come to the Planning Commission and ask for a temporary use permit. And that is what, so the other temporary uses we have is right up the road from the Warming Center, First Presbyterian Church has a temporary use permit approved for it for a music school. Those are cases where there are, there is a commercial business operating in First Presbyterian Church as a temporary use. And then you head down 11th Street and First Methodist houses the warming center as a temporary use. Um, could the warming, could a warming shelter, could this warming shelter become a warming shelter, not temporary? Well, I think that's what the intent of this code was, okay. as I understand it. Is that I the, wasn't involved in the previous discussion. Yeah, is that, is that the intent of the work of the, the planning commission was to establish some parameters to where there would no longer be temporary uses. Right. Use what does it cost every year for the permit for, for the temporary warming shelter? Three, yeah, yeah, three hundred bucks. Yeah, something like this. It's, it's the same as like a, it's for a conditional use permit. Okay, thank you. I, um, can you explain to me where this fire sprinkler is, where it's coming from? Because I don't see it in the in the code, and I don't remember. I mean, I authored the majority of this document. I don't remember ever requiring sprinklers. It was in one of the versions that um, I received when I came here. So um, perhaps. So the, the version that we have in our packet doesn't have anything to do with fire sprinklers. So I'm, I'm just wondering where. I, I left from. it out. And so um, the fire sprinklers is um, something that. Um, was in a previous draft that you used, you perhaps reviewed, or it was in a note that was in the um, the file that fire sprinklers should be required. So um, that's where it came from. Okay. Um, yeah. I said went back through history here, and I did find um, the first, the very first version of this document mentioned fire sprinklers, but the version I have that came from our last planning commission meeting did not. We had removed that. Um, okay. So, yeah, so that, I don't think that's a concern we need to worry, worry about unless other commissioners want to add it back in. Commissioner Corcoran. I'm, um, first of all, is it a function of the stories you need land use planning situation that you described for these temporary uses that we would even have a temporary warming shelter in Astoria? Um, no, other jurisdictions may have them written as um, 
another type of use. For instance, there has been a temporary warming shelter in Warrington, so at different points in time. And so it depends on, I mean, there, each jurisdiction can have their, their own approach and how they dealt with it. Very good. Well, I mean, I'd like to see this be more permanent, and I think, you know, fire's always a concern, but given not only the state fire marshal, but local concurrence with that, I would move forward with that not being an issue for Helen. Commissioner Price. Thank you. May I ask Commissioner Moore and perhaps staff as well um, how these hours of 7 p.m. to 8 a.m. Uh, came about, given that it gets dark around 4 o'clock here, 4.30, in the months when the warming center is, a warming center is most needed. Well, I believe the hours came from uh, uh, the operating procedures of the Astoria Warming Center. Okay, but that doesn't need to be in the code, those particular hours. If you could, you could, you could choose to expand them or contract them, however you feel is appropriate. Because, because what we're doing, we're, we're revising code for warming centers, not the warming center. Correct. Right, Although and you're actually creating code. that's the only one code. that exists, but, you know, yeah. Okay. You're actually creating code, yeah. because we currently, Part of the reason why this is in here is um, you're trying to create a situation where it could be applied to other other buildings, and you're using one as an example of what has worked or what hasn't worked. And so I think that's the impetus for um, applying it more globally. Thank you. Okay, so the next section should pop up a second. There we go. Oh, it doesn't show up. Sorry. Um, places of worship by zoning district. This is to show you that the majority of the um, zoning districts in which places of worship are located are in R3. There are seven um, places of worship in R3. Um, I believe there are five in R1 and uh, two in R2, and um, a few in um, the C3 zone. And then the next graphic, that'll pop up hopefully in a second. Is the city, and it shows, the dots are where various um, churches are located or places of worship are located and the green is um, R3, the really light um, tan is R1 and the yellow is R2. The um, reddish color are the commercial zones. So the question with the, the map and the designation of R1, R2, R3, there's some outlying um, zones that are um, commercial. What zones do you want to re allow this to be a conditional use in? What zones do you want it not to be permitted in? The, the slide at the very beginning showed that it would be permitted um, it's coming, I think. 
permitted outright in AHHC, C4, HR, LS, and S2, and a conditional use in C3, R2, and R3, um, I would recommend that there not be a maximum of 15 people, but more regulated by the um, square footage per person that is allowed by that particular building type. Um, the current warming center, um, they have 35 people that they typically serve and they segregate people by, um, by gender and um, allow people to stay overnight. So, um, It, it is based on building code um, allowance. So once again, I'm, I'm looking at the latest version of this that I have, and um, we, I had, um, add temporary warming shelter as conditional use in zones. AHHC, C3, C4, HR, LS, S2, R3, and R2. So basically the permitted outright zones that are listed on the graphic and the conditional use. Is that correct? There weren't any outright uses. Right, right, but, but combining those two zones, those two, air, those two um, listings of uses, of, of zones, into a conditional use. Is that correct or do I have it? I don't I don't have any outright use. Right, right. I understand that. But right. if AH HC C four HR LS and S two drop down to conditional use, that would be what you're you're referring to, is that correct? Yes. Okay. of the room should be. I prefer the latter. I do too. So building official. I would say that was the, the capacity was the, the instigator for these code amendments. So to, to just go with the fire marshals, um, um, 
the fire mar the the fire marshal advisory. This is really unnecessary. So, I mean, what it boils down to was the capacity was the issue that would that this that these code amendments were going to be resolving or dealing with, and so if we aren't addressing the capacity in these code amendments, there's no reason for the code amendments. Um, I think there still is if we're creating a permit that they can just have once and not have to renew. I guess um, I would ask because I think that there, I think there's actually some debate and discussion still to be had as to whether or not it does come back yearly. I think that there's some intention by some folks that the yearly permit provides some oversight and scrutiny in terms of how things and are moving forward. So, you know, Commissioner Moore, were you saying that, because I think that you're saying that there still would be a temporary use component, is that correct, that would, that well, would so, have your review? Uh, and we can, we'll go back in history on what brought this up when, when there was a lot of neighborhood concern three or four years ago. I can't remember, was it four years ago or three years ago? Anyway, yeah, there was a lot of neighborhood concern and the warming center had grown to a number around 25 average use. And so that's what instigated these was was twofold. Number one, how, how can we um, implement the, the comprehensive plan's desire to prevent incompatible uses in our residential neighborhoods um, and also provide an opportunity for temporary warming shelters to find and operate a permanent and consistent location. And so the numbers came from the data that we had at the time, three years ago, and it was a, a number at which it appeared became difficult to operate in a residential neighborhood. Um, we've had multiple years since then, and I have never seen any kind of reporting on whether or not, um, you know, how it is now. I, I assume it's better. It certainly could have been a management problem three years ago, or a clientele problem, or a capacity problem. The only data we had was capacity at the time. So I would be, you know, I would love to hear how it's gone in the last couple of years and see how that affects our decision making. Um, or our discussion on this because maybe it's not specifically capacity and so if we have more data or information on that that would be great and we should hear it um, if we don't then the capacity was addressing was the was the line between what seemed to operate okay and what seemed to impact the neighborhood and so if we decided to not pursue these code changes now then what would then, then the result would be that we would any kind of further warming centers would have the same standards um, that any that, that the previous one did um, and the existing one would come back every year. So so I'm gonna tell you from staff standpoint, I think that the temporary use process was a was a legal process for them to work under. I think it's clunky. Um, I'm sure you think it's clunky. Uh, <laughs> I think it's. I think it's. Uh, I think that we can do better by spelling out a more definitive process for how these things could work. 
And so I think that my this exercise is, is a good a good exercise to be able to put it in code because I'm going to tell you that there's there's also other questions that I don't think that I think that maybe when the commission was working on this they were they were looking at as Commissioner Moore said kind of what was happening in the neighborhoods but I would ask you what about day use drop-in centers which are now being discussed in the community where are those going to be permitted um, how are those going to be dealt with? Uh, because I think we may have some other types of uh, similar uses which are on the horizon that it would be great to be able to have some guidance uh, for those who are working to establish those types of facilities to know where the, the, the bar stands and how staff should process it. So might it make sense to table this discussion right now and fold it into a part of a, a bigger discussion like what you're suggesting about different kinds of, 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 um, of businesses that supply services to unsheltered populations? Yeah, I mean, I think that, I think that there's, that, I mean, I think that there could be more discussion and there are actually representatives in the audience tonight who are uh, a part of this, this discussion. And um, you know, I think they they definitely attended because this agenda item was was scheduled for this work session. So, uh, President Fitzpatrick, I would I, I have been a member of the Homelessness Solutions Task Force that was appointed by um, former Mayor Lemire um, two just about exactly two years ago now, and uh, Police Chief Spalding. Um, chairs that along with now current mayor Bruce Jones and there's been a lot of work put into this um, task force and there's a, uh, a good bit of energy in Astoria towards providing additional services to meet <coughs> the challenges of the homelessness population and so I, I think that your suggestion um, Commissioner Cameron Laddick of, of uh, well, perhaps adding on, allowing the people who came here tonight to speak, but then tabling this to uh, perhaps another work session in January so that we can have a broader conversation um, is, is a good idea and one that I would certainly favor. I, I would be comfortable with that. Other commissioners? Okay. Commissioner Cameron, since we take some public comment, then that would be welcome. Or I would welcome <laughs> public comment. Okay, so if you would like to speak this evening uh, regarding this item, and again, it's what we have in our work session, and not anything unrelated to the work session tonight. Please come step forward to the lectern, state your name and address for the record, and please limit your comments to three minutes. So Rick Bowers, 357 Commercial here in Astoria. And I am on the, the board of the Warming Center. And um, speaking for myself and not for the Warming Center though, I'm perfectly fine with continuing temporary use permit while there are wider discussions. Because, I mean, it's, uh, we kind of run through some some things that we kind of know where the answer is going to be. You know, is there another place in town that's going to give us free rent? You know, it's probably going to be a no, that sort of thing. But it's a process that we can run through, and I'm I'm perfectly fine 
continuing as, as we are. Um, I do have specific things that I wrote about where the code last stood that, that's in my letter. And I guess I don't want to repeat all of that, but um, and maybe it's more appropriate for me to talk about it in a future thing, but it's around the, the 35, well, the technical advisory and how to put that in the code or not in the code and, and whatnot. So I'm happy to wait for another time to talk about that if it's more appropriate. My bottom line is I'm fine waiting. Great. Thank you, Mr. Powers. Anyone else? Davis, 1354 Miller Lane. I would add that at the last community meeting, which is part of the process for the conditional use, it's my understanding that no one showed up from the community. And so I think that's an indication that the warming center has definitely um, worked hard successfully to improve the um, operation. I've been involved since its inception, so I speak from experience. But anyhow, we considered that a really good sign that no one showed up. I think it's an important part of the process to make sure that the community does have input. So we just continue that. Thank you, Ms. Davis. Can I say one more quick thing? Please state your name and address for the record. You've got a minute and a half left. Rick Bowers, and thank you. <laughs> Rick Bowers, 357 Commercial. I did want to say that um, Commissioner Moore, one of the reasons that he originally proposed this is he thought it might be difficult for us to get grants because we don't have a permanent location. And there is one uh, granting organization that has turned us down twice, and one of their reasons is we don't have a permanent location. So I, I would appreciate the code so that we could get a, a permanent, if that's a word, conditional use. Great. Thank you, Mr. Bowers. Anyone else? Uh, Roger Hayes of 632 Florence Avenue. Um, I was kind of debating whether my topic would have relevance, but I think it does in that what part of what's been discussed here is that there is overflow into the warming center from uh, folks who may not um, meet criteria for helping hands, for example. So. Um, my experience is I, I worked in uh, community mental health for 16 years. I worked as an alcohol and drug counselor. And over the past year and a half, I've interviewed folks on the street, over 100 people. And it's kind of interesting to kind of look at some of the information that's um, consistent. And I feel like it's information that I'm holding, I'm kind of sharing, I'm, I'm holding myself, I'm not sharing. So I feel like there are certain things that may be relevant to this conversation. And um, there's just two points that I have. One is that I would like to make, make a case for wet housing, uh, housing in which uh, the participants are allowed to consume alcohol, is one model that's used in Harvard. I'm, I'm sorry, could you start that over again and also speak a little louder? Yeah, I, I would like to make a case for wet recovery housing. And also, um, since I have some misinformation, I feel like that there's even like a double standard in terms of how some of these individuals are received by the treatment community. I know that. Uh, the treatment community tends to be very black and white. It tends to be an all or nothing type of uh, approach to recovery. Uh, there are other models that follow, for example, like a harm reduction model. And from, um, from one of the manuals themselves for uh, recovery, it says that 
harm reduction is defined as a prevention strategy that addresses the difficulty of getting people in recovery by focusing on techniques to minimize the personal uh, social problems associated with drug use rather than making absence the goal. So the other inventions you can use that way reduce the amount of substance use that individuals are currently engaged in. But it's interesting to me that I've heard so many people that, in, in particular one thing that gets to me is that a number of women are on the street because they choose to use cannabis or alcohol. And the thing that they continually say to me is that you can go home, you can have a drink, you can go to a dispensary, you can buy weed, you can smoke a bowl of weed in your, in your home, you can have a cocktail, but I can't do that. And so there tends to be this kind of like blind spot to a, a, a double standard that, you know, any of us here can do that. But if, if one of these people want to do that, they can't go into housing. And so part of that, part of that's that overflow you're seeing with like, with like Rick in the, the warming center. So it just, it's a consistent thing. And I'll ask people, what do you need or what do you want? And that would be the answer. And for the longest time, I just brushed it off. because like, what do you mean? Why don't you just go do your thing? So I think it's significant. The more it's settled into my mind, the more it, it means more over time. So. That's all it it uh, might be helpful if you were willing to also put some of that in writing to us. Okay, in what form? <laughs> I'm sorry? Uh, what form would you like that in? If, if you could write a letter outlining what you've discussed with us or your thoughts that you'd like to share with us, um, give them to the city planner. You can drop them at the front desk or email to, to uh, planner prior here. I'd be very interested in seeing that, especially before our next work session. Thank you, I'll do that. May I make a comment on that as well? Please do, Mr. Uh, Commissioner Moore. I would just state that the, the temporary warming shelter code amendments that we have in front of us don't prescribe any operating procedure necessarily for a center. So what we're discussing tonight, a center like yours could potentially operate as long as it meets the minimal guidelines of this conditional use. So we're not saying you have to use this method or that method or not allow consumption of alcohol or whatever. As long as you're following the prescriptions that we're providing, then you would get the conditional use. And everything else would be whatever whatever laws would apply to it. This is almost more of a behavioral health contracting type of issue. Okay, we're, we're, we're talking about these particular code amendments tonight. So as uh, the president said, share those with the planner and, and maybe we can get weaved into a, the larger discussion we're hoping to have. I'll do that, thank you. Anyone else? My name is Danielle Hall. I live at 1555 6th Street. And I just wanted to underscore a portion of Mr. Bauer's letter um, regarding the volunteer demand and if the capacity of warming centers is decreased to 15, which I understand is a table discussion for later, but just to be in your bonnet. Um, our current shelter operates with one staff member and one volunteer um, for seven shifts throughout the night of three hours apiece. There are warming centers in other towns that require their volunteers to stay longer, which like limits the volunteer pool because it has to be people who have an entire free night a week or something like that. So our demand on volunteers is very low and yet we still have trouble finding the volunteers because of, I don't know, a lack of community education or a community willingness to help, I don't know. But I think 
that if we reduce the maximum capacity of warming centers, we will find that within six months, like in Warrington or whatever, they will be forced to shut down because of the lack of volunteers, which I can say feels terrible as a volunteer to feel like you are the person that put someone out on the street because you had to get up at work um, for work at 5 a.m. So like because you couldn't volunteer, the warming center shut. And so I feel that if we increased the capacity of one warming center to serve more residents, we would reduce the number of volunteers required to help out. You know, if we did make it a permanent shelter and could get grants for different things, although grants don't often cover like staff costs, that's another issue. Um, but basically, I think that we can serve more people with fewer volunteers by consolidating like one warming center and focusing our efforts on that. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. President, can I clarify one more thing? Um, I, I vaguely remember the, the 15, the, the code amendments that we have in front of us in R3, which would be where the Asbury Warming Center is located. Um, these particular code amendments would limit that to, at 25. And in R2, it would be limited to 15. And then in other zones, um, a shelter could be operated as long as they weren't housing more than 10. So that wouldn't even go through, it wouldn't even be part of this. But, so I, I'm not sure if earlier, I remember seeing 15, if um, it was stated as the maximum in, the, in R3, um, the maximum as this code is written would be 25, not 15 in R3. Thank you, Mr. Moore. I, unless Planner uh, Pryor disagrees, I think it's time to put this one aside and go on to the next work session. Um, we have two more work sessions this evening. One is small cell wireless, which was the largest part of our packet, and columbarium, which was the smallest part of our, um, our uh, packet. And I would like to take these out of order and do columbarium uh, first, because I believe that we have people here that would like to speak to this issue, and so that we can allow them to finish their evening and uh, move on. So, Paul Barry, if we could. Mr. Estes. prior to getting the PowerPoint presentation out, I know that there are representatives in the audience that would like to talk a little bit about why this is coming up, and, but I, I, I can kind of tee it off as well. Um, so this issue was brought up to the Astoria City Council a few months ago. Um, asking for guidance from the council as to whether or not they would support amendments to allow a columbarium uh, to be established at, in this case, Grace Episcopal Church. Um, presently, Astoria City Code, not the development code, but the city code, prohibits burials inside the city limits of Astoria. And this goes back to when um, Ocean View Cemetery was created in the late 1800s, and um, remains were exhumed from the cemetery up on the top of the hill and moved to Ocean View Cemetery. And at the time, it was seen as a thing, uh, I think you're dealing with drinking water issues, and there's a whole issue about cemeteries in, in city limits, and there was this whole effort to to move them out of the city limits. And so we're dealing with a, some code language that goes back 
um, if not decades, um, over 100 years in our city code. The, the, the city council, though, said uh, we feel um, that uh, we were fine with um, cremains um, being um, um, placed in uh, columbaria in the city limits and provided direction to the city attorney uh, to start working on that. Blair Hennigard uh, did some work in, and on the city code but also suggested that there be development code amendments um, which would address columbaria um, particularly in residential zones. Um, and in this case, as we were talking about earlier, you know, a lot of our our places of worship are in residential zones in our community, and that may be where um, where these may be coming in, in the future. So I just wanted to tee it up in terms of how we got here tonight, because there was some history with city council. Maybe Ms. Fryer can give some uh, some of the, the detail, but I know that there are representatives who want to give a, a presentation from Grace Episcopal.
was obviously done afterwards. So one of the, the, the place that I always heard him talk about it was to be included in um, the stairwell that is right up front. And I have pictures if that's okay. Sure. To bring to all of you. As the pictures are coming around, uh, the existing stairwell is here um, at the very front of Grace Episcopal Church, if you've ever seen it, the big um, red doors at the very top. Underneath, um, on the second page, actually, well, no. Um, the area here to the right of the stairwell is where um, we would like to have a garden-type area um, that it would be the entrance to the column area. And so it would be built into the stairwell side. Um, underneath the stairwell is an empty storage area. So there would no, there would be no, um, unless the builders or designers of the columbarium deem it necessary, um, there would not need to be any structural difference done to the building except for an entrance that would be um, necessary. Um, so the garden area there towards the right-hand side, right where you enter into the church, would be the area where the columbarium entrance would be. Um, the place here on the left-hand side has the trash cans at the top currently. Um, that's the door that's there existing. So that's the door that you enter into, into that storage space that's already there. So um, even adding an entrance on the other side of it would not um, really make much of a difference to um, what is already existingly there. So um, when he spoke about it, he spoke about possibly having a wall of niches towards the inside. So some of the pictures that um, Ms. Mrs. Fryer provided would be exactly in line with what he, would, he was thinking when he um, was talking about adding the columbarium to it. Um, there are other options. Um, as well that I know he would be would have been open to, but um, I think the wall of niches would be a wonderful way for us to be able to remember the impact that he had on his con um, sorry on his congregation. Um, it would be a wonderful place for him to be able to rest. At this church. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Would anyone else like to approach and discuss with us? Did you want to say you see there will be quite, I would think, uh, from the street level, it should be quite inconspicuous. It would be tucked into the building. And so only approaching the church and going inside would you be able to kind of visualize, visually see it. Um, so that should be a further low impact. 
to the to the nature of the church uh, side. So thank you very much. Thank you. It's a, as you can see, it's a very important thing that we're working on. Really, thank you for helping us. So. Do you have a preference in terms of zoning districts, number one? Number two, do you have a preference of interior, exterior? We're talking about um, building something exterior to the building. Um, do you have a preference of um, maybe those exterior type of columbaria being in certain zones versus other zones? And then um, the last item is that we would recommend that no matter where they're located, that they be a conditional use. And just to clarify, um, I think what they're saying, while it would be exterior to the main part of the church, it still would be inside of a structure of sorts under the staircase. So this may be kind of even a bit of a hybrid where it's maybe not not behind you know the the church doors but still within a structure of the, the building because mm -hmm. I, I think like because the you look at the exhibit up here there's kind of a column uh area that there may be something that if, if that was placed in the garden area but i think this is all would be behind some sort of doorway underneath the the stairs uh, structure, so I think we probably call this an interior type of, of uh, use. Okay. Uh, yes, uh, when I first went through this, I was thinking interior would be the appropriate sort of uh, you know, design uh, without knowing what proposals might be, but I guess my my interest is for it to be more of a private nature along the lines has been described for this particular project, but we're, we're talking citywide as far as things go. And so my, my interest is for it to be more personal rather than a public space. Um, so I was thinking interior, but with, I think, uh, the lack of conspicuousness, I thought. The way that this was done kind of meets a sweet spot with me that preserves the more private nature, but also making, I guess, more accessible and in a place mm -hmm. that makes sense in the building. Yeah. Um, I guess I'm comfortable in any zone, I guess, as a conditional use, if that there's already a church, uh, uh, it would be houses of worship. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I guess, and this hasn't been brought up in this proposal at all, and I almost hesitate to bring it up, but it would there need to be a distinction about pets? Is there an issue as far as I no, I mean I'm yeah, okay. So I don't know that I don't know that we do either, but it's something that I think is a you know kind of add on to that conversation. Okay, those are the things I'm well, I, I could see somebody creating a um, a pet column barrier as well, should they wish to. I mean I could see that. I mean that I mean that there could be something like that associated with a veterinary clinic or something like that. So, I've got it. Commissioner Price. Thank you. Uh, I, I think it's a, a lovely idea, and uh, I think uh, that, that Father Lance would be very proud to hear from you tonight. And I, I bet there are a bunch of ministers 
uh, throughout the land who would, who would be happy to, uh, would just be very proud to have someone like you, Jennifer, come up and, and speak of how he touched your community. I'm for it however it is. Uh, I'm okay with inside, outside. I think it should be associated with places of worship. Um, and I, 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 I don't know how the code defines that, so because, you know, people worship in many different ways, uh, but I do think it should be with a church, however that's defined, and, um, and I don't have problems with Pat being engaged either. I would pretty much agree with what Commissioner Price said. My wife was the uh, church secretary at First Presbyterian. Um, I wouldn't generally share this other, other than because of this, um, so I understand your, your feelings. I, I think it's wonderful that you have brought this forward to us. I was not aware that burial was not allowed within the city limits, and the idea of the columbarium project, um, it's very touching. It, I think it's just wonderful that you, you brought this in front of us, and I think that what you're asking for uh, would be acceptable to me. I realize that this is for the whole city. Our work session is for uh, columbaria allowed in the entire city, um, and, and therefore it would also allow your use, but I'm, I'm completely in favor of this. Um, yeah, I also don't have any concerns about indoor or, or outdoor, as long as it's conditional use, as long as it's part of place worship. Commissioner Womack. I'm also in agreement, uh, inside, outside, and I think it's a, a beautiful thing that you're doing. Commissioner Womack. Inside, outside, internal, external, I'm fine with all of it. I do not think it should be restricted just to places of worship because that excludes people who may not worship. Commissioner mm -hmm. Corkins, I have a question. Fortunately, I haven't uh, Currently, one can, can one currently keep cremains of loved ones in one single? Okay. Thank you. Are you ready for the last item? Yes. I am. Did, okay. did you have any closing remarks you wanted to make? Or? Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very Great. much. Thank you very much for coming this evening. So, so just so you know the process, um, we will be drafting um, the actual language that will change in the code, and it will go with the other items on the agenda tonight as a package, probably to the March um, Planning Commission meeting. And then um, if it becomes law, um, it would be approved here, assuming that it would be approved here, it would go to the City Council for their approval, and then it would be effective approximately 30 days after the ordinance is, is signed. <coughs> so we're talking probably June, July, yeah. somewhere in there before it's effective. Right. And if you sign in over on the the, the um, sign-in sheet, we'll make sure that you're contacted for any future opportunities to comment. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay. Check in in terms of how in depth 
they want to go on this item now that it's 9.35 at night? I was going to kind of skip over some of the slides and, and, and just get to the nuts and bolts, if that's okay with you. I'm ready to approve. You're ready to <laughs> Okay, so I'm going to go to, um, oh, they're not showing up. Sorry. Um, but you have, you have a copy. Does it show up on your copy that you have in your packet that I handed out tonight? This? Yes. Slide? Yes. Yeah. It's the very first one of the, um, the tables in the PowerPoint. So I just want to go through this really quickly is that um, the, we, we looked at a variety of codes that are out there. The National League of Cities, the, um, the industry proposed model ordinance, the ordinance in Bend and Beaverton, Bainbridge Island, and Madison, Wisconsin. And then Hillsborough is going through a process of trying to get theirs approved. Um, and I threw those in there because you could see the type of comments that the industry is providing regarding the various regulations that Hillsborough proposed. So I wanted you to kind of get the feel for um, how the industry might be reacting to their proposal. Um, the majority of the regulations include definitions. Personally, I like the National League of Cities definitions. I think they're very comprehensive and include um, the gamut of um, items that we would want to consider. The application requirements, I thought Bend and Beaverton were interesting because they required a visual impact analysis. So a graphic showing what does the, the final structure look like. So you can go out and say, gee, does it look like that? And if it doesn't, then you can come back and require them to do something different. Um, design standards, almost everybody has design standards. Um, height limits, um, volume, volume of the um, base of the um, pole. Um, let me show you one real quick. So in Boise, Idaho, um, the, the cherry picker type of thing on the left shows the, the um, gentleman is installing the, the small cell wireless on the top. At the bottom, at the base, you'll see the man is standing right next to the tower, the base of the tower, and you can see how big that tower is compared to a human being. It's than it looks. Um, and so that's why we wanna maybe regulate based on volume at the base um, in terms of the cubic feet that they can have at the base. Um, the, the graphic on the right, the picture on the right, shows the, um, the cell tower, or the, sorry, the small cell wireless tower um, integrated into a, a um, light standard. So you can see what it would look like with a light standard. 
So um, that gives you that idea. Um, so the next items that are in the code comparison are things like stealth design. It should pop up here in a minute. Um, stealth design, so how to have um, design that would um, enable um, minimalistic type of, um, of, of equipment and, um, and visual. Um, color, um, many of the jurisdictions require that the, the equipment be painted the same color as the, the pole that it's on. So if we allow it on a, a green pole, we would ask them to paint it green um, so that it's more stealth. Noise, um, a lot of the jurisdictions have noise regulations. Um, vibration regulations are in one jurisdiction in Beaverton. Um, maximum diameter of the pole um, ranges from 9 inches to 24 inches or not regulated at all. Um, historic or ornamental poles, um, many of them, or two of them I should say, prohibit those type of um, poles to be used and I would recommend that that would be what we would do in, in Astoria as well. Undergrounding cabinets, two jurisdictions require undergrounding um, the cabinets, the cabling and the wiring and I would recommend that we require that because we have the facilities underground to do that. Um, let's see, I'll pop up in a second, sorry, it's so slow. Um, That's correct. They were they were adopted quite some time ago, um, when the um, regulations first came out. So. Um, so they're an acceptable model. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, I don't know where he's going to go. <laughs> um, so the next line is about aerial cable spans. So imagine that this is a, um, a wire, um, a, a power wire, if you will. So they would allow a span to be located on the wire. So the wireless facility would be around the wire. Um, and that is prohibited in, in, um, in Hillsborough and allowed in the Oregon draft that is currently being um, worked on between the League of Cities and the wireless carriers. Um, electrical load analysis, Hillsborough requires it, everybody else is silent. Um, priority per street classification, that's in Hillsborough's um, everybody else is silent. Um, separation. Um, Hillsborough requires a minimum of 250 feet between each um, carrier and each 
um, wireless facility, small cell wireless facility. And um, when we talk about, towards the end of the presentation, I will talk about um, the Madison, Wisconsin um, proposal. They also have it by block base. Um, and so we'll talk about that just a little bit. Um, light arid views, um, logo ID, info, permit information, RF warning sticker, um, those are um, required in Hillsboro, Bainbridge Island limits the signage, messages, or IDs. Um, the last code comparison talks about static or flashing lights. If they talk about it at all, it's prohibited. Um, new poles complying with ADA, Bainbridge Island requires that, and the new Oregon draft will require that. And then design zones. Um, Bainbridge Island, the reason I pulled Bainbridge Island is because they have a shoreline zone management area. And I thought that was intriguing that, that they would regulate the, um, the small cell wireless differently in their shoreline. And I thought that could be a good model for us. Um, and then Madison, Wisconsin talks about view quarters and um, aesthetic standards. I'm gonna avoid all this and get to the final part. Um, so the wireless um, regulations in Madison, Wisconsin talk about block face lengths and they allow one um, small cell facility per block face um, of a certain size, and then when it goes up in size, they allow two, and then it goes up from there. Um, and so I applied something like that to our city, and um, you'll see a map, and hopefully it'll show up nicely. Oh, it does, okay. So um, the kind of turquoise color is the zero to 100, or zero to 200 block face length, so in, in that um, instance, we would probably only allow one per block face, is my recommendation. The orange is the next size up, so it's 200 to 300, I believe, um, in size. And then the red is the next size up. The um, purple is next, and then yellow we would allow um, three or four per block face. Um, so that's kind of the idea in a nutshell. Um, do you have thoughts? And are you Chair, or, Chair Fitzpatrick, can I try to make a little bit more on this? This is an issue that, um, again, has come to City Council, and City Council has provided direction to staff and the Planning Commission to, to move forward and developing code on this as well. Um, Verizon Wireless has come to the City Council and said that they are wanting to start uh, pursuing small-scale wireless technology. Um, this is a, uh, this is the future of powering these things. Um, and um, this is 
actually something where there is federal regulation involved in terms of stating uh, what has to be provided. Um, I was actually at a planner's legal issues seminar last week and uh, one of the discussion topics was this. One of the, the things that uh, was said is, and I remember when I started as a planner in the 1990s, cities were developing cell phone, uh, cell tower ordinances at the time. That was the, the technology, technology du jour. I will say that cell phone ordinances pretty much, uh, or cell tower ordinances have pretty much remained static over the years because the technology has remained static. What it is appearing is this technology is going to be ever-changing and we are going to be seeing constant code amendments to deal with this in the future as we move forward and as this technology continues to evolve and continue to change. So I'm just kind of setting that up. This is, this is new. Jurisdictions are now starting to tackle it. Uh, we've been asked by Verizon to start the process. And so, so here we are, we're, we're doing it. But it's, it's going to be um, one that's going to require updating, it sounds like, um, you know, as we move along in the future. Okay, so I have a couple questions. Unless, yes. So the map showed it basically starting at Franklin and moving north from there. It doesn't show anything south of Franklin is. Um, and it did discuss mostly in the downtown is that where these are going to be placed in general or are they also picking up the hill and back down the other side? So um, the, the FCC says that um, they can put them anywhere. Um, the representatives that I've spoken to have said that they only want to put them where the um, activity is the greatest where they're going to, um, where there's a lot of people and they're intending to get um, faster service for that, that customer. Um, that's not to say that they won't propose it in our residential areas. This is just an idea for our downtown. Okay. Um, the Boise example, the cherry picker and the gentleman that was standing beside that, that's what they're proposing for residential areas. Okay. The other one is what they're proposing for areas where they can locate on the light standard. So we have an awful lot of reading here. Is is there any controversy to this? Are there people that are more knowledgeable than I do that would know why this would be an issue? Or um, well, here's, here's this is a non-controversy non-controversial it's it's very controversial um, the issue there's there's several issues with this technology the first one is that the FCC has regulated that um, we have to make a decision for something that is co-located so if it's in one of the um, light standards that are um, downtown, not the acorn lights, we're not going to allow them on the acorn lights, but any of the other light standards, um, we only have 60 days to approve it. So if we, if we want to regulate it at all, we need to have some standards in our code so that we can make that administrative approval or denial. The new towers are, or the new, new standards um, we have 90 days to approve or deny. 
if we don't act in those two time frames, then it is considered a prohibit, um, and they can take us to court to require us to allow it. So, so with that, when Ms. Fryer and I were talking about this, basically the federal guidelines or requirements for implementing these things do not follow state of Oregon land use rule guidelines. So putting these types of requests as permits that have to go before a planning commission, design review committee, et cetera, does not work. Because under state law, there's 120 days for us to process it. So we have to have staff approved permits to be able to meet federal law. So what do you need from us this evening? Do you have any thoughts with regard to any of the items that I talked about earlier about um, that are in those um, tables? Anything that stands out to you that you want to make sure that the city includes? So visual impact analysis, is that something that you want to have? I think we've all yes. had a visual impact analysis. Okay, and I'm going to assume design standards you want. Um, height limit. Um, the Oregon draft has 40 feet as the height limit for new poles. Um, there are a number of um, options there. Um, we could say that um, it, it can be no taller than the, the existing poles that are along the, the line. Um, we can say that it could be within 10 feet of the existing poles. Um, so, um, your thoughts on that? I like no taller than. No taller than. I like the no taller than oh. um, The process again would be an administrative process that's consistent across the board. Um, stealth design, I'm assuming that you want stealth design, um, color, um, noise. We currently don't really regulate noise. Um, we don't have a decibel standard. Beaverton does a decibel standard um, in terms of their noise. Real quickly to clarify, we're talking about radio frequency noise, not like audible noise, right? No, they're talking about audible noise like of the equipment, yes. Or something? Okay. So um, their equipment that, that okay. we would, I assume, would, appro would propose to be undergrounded, but that could affect um, basement dwellers. Um, so, do we want noise? Yes. Oh, yes. That is going to have to be something that we deal with since we don't deal with already. And I know that the police department has concerns about that, about audible noise requirements just because how you read it becomes very difficult. So this is going to have to be something to see whether or not what is doable yes. with our Department. Would that vibrations be part of that conversation? Does that complicate things or noise and vibrations that go together in these types of things? Vibrations is easier. Okay. My understanding is each of these units requires a refrigerator size power source and device in order to operate each pole. Is that correct? 
That is correct. That's what they're saying. So the polls um, are the easy part, it seems to me. But our chair rail construction seems to allow access, at least to require that sort of thing. Yes. Maybe? Undergrounding, yes. And I've talked to engineering, and they, they recommend the undergrounding. Well, that's true for a certain part of downtown, but that's not true for the bulk of Astoria. That's correct. So and what so, do we do about that? So um, we would more or less probably have the big, um, bulky ones on the the big bulkies that look like the Boise, or you would have a, um, a standalone box instead of the circle around the, so. Not such a terrible problem in commercial areas, but in residential areas, that would be really problematic. Could we have it dug for a design review? <laughs> as far as like making them look like some of the macro towers? Right. That look like trees? I mean, I mean, consideration for aesthetics. The only thing we seem to be able to influence is aesthetics and a few design things. Yeah, I would, I would say that uh, because these are all going to be purposefully placed at the pedestrian level, these are meant to be at lower levels. Um, I'm going to say some of the, when you start making things look like faux trees, they, they can stand out when they're in the distance, but when you're up close and personal to them, it looks like a cheap Christmas tree. <laughs> May I ask um, for, for the downtown area where uh, there are the acorn lights, uh, there are a lot of places where the big old street lights have been removed already, right? Or yes. will be in the future. So you're adding extra poles, which I guess is going to come up to max diameter here, right? Right, right. And so do we want to have a max diameter? Um, nine inches seems like it's, it's very controversial in terms of the, um, the industry. And so um, don't know how much you want to fight them. Get smaller over time. I just make it easy for myself instead of nodding all the time. I'm for the maximum restrictions that we can get away with. Okay. <laughs> and I'll put out that if there's a way to, through the fee and licensing process, to create a financial incentive for them to try innovative aesthetic design features in a Astoria destination kind of community, that that would be something worth considering. I'd like to see them try hard here. I think the Riverwalk, while I'm kind of going though, is a conundrum because they need to, the Riverwalk is exactly the kind of place they would like to have the towers because that's where people are walking, taking selfies and stuff like that. Am, am I on the right track? Yes. And so uh, aesthetic considerations for Riverwalk uh, towers might be a, a separate conversation or another aspect of the conversation that I haven't thought about before. Okay. And then, um, Port, historic or ornamental poles, um, we're proposing that they be um, prohibited. And that would mean that in, um, in um, Mill Pond, they would be um, prohibited with the crookneck um, lighting, and then also in Uniontown with proposed lighting. We may look into that. In terms of the, at the legal issues, seminar what was stated there was the only way you could prohibit them on ornamental poles if it was in a local historic district so like mill pond which has ornamental poles it's not within a historic district so 
So we have to, the only place that the federal standards provide some dispensation is whenever there are historic districts. That's true, thank you. So, um, let's see. Um, safety and integrity studies and structural calculations, we would require that for any permit. Um, and some people require a public improvement permit or a right-of-way permit, and I think that we would want to include that as well. Um, um, what do you think about aerial cable spans? Do you want to allow it, not allow it? Is it an aesthetic consideration? Okay. I think so. It's, it's really ugly. In a city of wires, do they have spans on them? Okay. So, and then what do you think about, um, let's see. Um, no, I was thinking, well, messages, do you want messages or no messages? Sorry. Messages or no messages. So do you want them to slap, they have a limit, uh, right now they have a requirement to put an RF sticker on it, a radio frequency sticker, and typically they um, don't have other requirements. So they don't have to have their name, they don't have to have, in fact, many places prohibit them from putting their name on it. Um, some jurisdictions require them to have an ID number and a phone contact to call in case of emergency. Do you want any of those things? Do you not want them? My issue is no advertising other than that. Okay. So one, one other thing to kind of understand is right now um, there are four, three or four major, well, it depends on the merger. So, right. So, I mean, the thing is, is right now, each one of the different providers, their technology is all different. So each company is going to have to have their own style and way of installing this. So um, you have AT&T, you have Verizon, T-Mobile is merging with Sprint, and if that if that merger goes through, then you'll have the three major, but then there could be, I mean, so it's um, it's one of those things where um, the question, I think a lot of the stickers could be, do you have T-Mobile? Do you have AT&T? Right, right. Do and, and does that start looking like advertising on your, right. on your polls? Right, and I think I've heard no advertising, right? Yeah. What do you think about the idea of limiting the, the number by block face or by um, like generally that. does that work for their technology if we say one year block face and they say but that doesn't work is that the issue um, 500 feet. 500 feet. so I think it'll work it has to work for their technology though not our aesthetic numbers though right Oops. right but but I think every 500 feet is what they're saying now in Boise they said that they wanted to be every 100 to 150 feet and Boise tried to push back, but they didn't have regulations. So I think having regulations in place that that identify what you want is really important. Can you, you also have them, I mean, if we have three providers, can we insist that they fight it out on the same pole? 
or do we have to allow for three separate structures uh, per block face? I thought, so I thought that there was the thing about co-location. Is that not, does that not mean having the same, having all their stuff in one box from the different um, companies? That's correct. So what I proposed is that co-location be the standard and that if they want to do something different, they have to demonstrate that co-location won't work. Yeah, I think that's not that point though. I, I, I made a note that Beaverton Ben had a co-location yes. language. And Barbara, didn't, in your research, the only co I don't think anyone is co-locating quite yeah. yet. Um, I guess there is one, I'm gonna call it whole designer and provider, which is designed something that could be collated, co-located, but the model is that the cities install these poles and then and have the various entities rent from them. And my, my concern was that the city just doesn't have the resources to go and buy a bunch of poles and, and start doing this. But that, that's the kind of the only technology that's even been developed that, that you've been right. able to research. Right. And but that's not the to say that there the, won't be. One thing we might run into with a co-location is with a short pole, a 40-foot pole, and they're putting eight-foot, you know, antennas on there. <clears throat> the co-location being lower is you're going to get pretty low, pretty fast, and it may not even be useful for them. So that it might. I mean, I I would like to see co-location to see the fewest number of poles possible, but I I don't know if it's going to be feasible with this. We'll see. But wait, but it sounds like I, I think I missed the point. I, I missed the eight foot point of reference. And that's how tall their antennas are. Well, their antennas are, they're not, you know, one foot tall. Right. Yeah. Substantial. And so but they, I can't, they can't be adjacent and they can't, you can't have one on this side and one on this side. They're going to be, have to be at different heights mm -hmm. on a pole. I mean, it might make sense that it would compromise on height if that allows us fewer poles. Or is this, or, or will this design standard control that only one is allowed per block and whoever gets there first gets it? Or would we have to allow, if we allow one for Verizon per block, do we have to allow one for Hemovolt per block? Now, Madison, Wisconsin, um, they, they have it spread out, oh, excuse me, they have it spread out so that um, only <coughs> one carrier can, can be applied um, until they get up to, um, 600 feet, and then they allow two carriers per block base. So that kind of regulation is okay? It, it, it hasn't, hasn't been challenged yet. Yeah. <laughs> right. Because yeah, that seems to be restrictive. It is restrictive. Um, now that's not to say that the wireless community won't come out when we actually write the regulations and start to um, push back. Right. And and so these are all going to be on the on the right of way on the sidewalk. Yes. And yes. Some of the chair walls don't even have, you know. So what's the engineer, city's engineer, saying about the fact that the, the chair walls in certain places aren't? Well, that, I'll tell you that each pole, um, those poles are not just floating in air. If you would go and see uh, that there is for each big traffic pole, there is like a concrete pylon which goes up through the void and those things sit on and, and even planters downtown um, have, have structural stability under the planter. So I mean, there is a whole lot of girding that happens um, under the, the, the chair walls. So that would all have to be designed and as part of 
lowers their installation cost. A little off topic, but I watched them install the new post on the corner of 8th and Commercial, that, the one that used to get taken out by semis every four weeks. They poured concrete in that hole for like two hours. <laughs> it was unbelievable. I just stood there and watched, and I'm like, wow, that's a lot of concrete. <laughs> Is there any way for them to, uh, to, to use the um, cannery-themed garbage cans as a load of the street design? It seems like they want them low, and I saw two sure. Anyway, again, the incentive for creative aesthetic approach. I think we're all in agreement. Any other closing thoughts? I want to thank you for those tables that you put together. Comparisons, that was really helpful. Very nice. Um, so, if it's your pleasure, I'll come back on January 28th with code for this, code for well, code for all four, if if that's your pleasure, and you can you can breeze through whatever you want to um, breeze through, if that's okay. That works for me, and I believe for the rest of the commission. So I'll be impressed. Okay. Okay. So I will have it ready for you, January twenty eighth. You'll get it at least a week in advance, hopefully two, um, and I won't include as many. There won't be any additional exhibits. It'll just be the code. So um, keep your packets. Okay. Thank Great. you. Reports of officers. Do any officers have any reports that they would like to make this evening? I would just acknowledge that it's my last uh, planning commission meeting. Ah. And it's been fun. It was the end of my term and I'm not renewing. We have yeah. enjoyed having you on here. We will be sorry to have you go. Thank you. Um, we hope you'll come visit us. <laughs> come back on shortage of ways. Please come. You know, kind of going on with that, uh, on the next Monday City Council meeting at 6 p.m. is the, the commissioner. Uh, uh, thank you, yearly thank you. And, and uh, Mayor Jones is going to be doing recognition for those who are outgoing. So, uh, you know, I'll be there. there. <laughs> Great. Did you want to, um, just one last housekeeping item. Did you want to go back to the minutes? I'm, I'm fine. I mean, just with the time, I'm, I mean, I think that it's, I'm fine if, if they want more time. We okay. can just include it as draft in the city council packet. We'll let the council know kind of just the, the circumstances of having this meeting be early in the month because the holidays it kind of is what it is. So. Okay, and then um, Tuesday, January twenty eighth, will be the next TSAC and APC meeting, um, and you'll have all these um, code amendments to look at. And then keep in mind that Thursday, January thirtieth. At 6.30 is the annual commissioner training, and we'd like to see you all there if, you, if you're willing to come. Um, and if you could let Tiffany or myself know whether you're coming or not so that we can prepare the room appropriately, that'd be great. Thank can you. Can you state, what was the time and date again? 6.30 p.m. On? Thursday the 30th. Thank you. I'll be there. Then, uh, also for the planning commission's information
information on January 16th, the City Council will be holding a work session, which is going to be dealing with uh, possibly directing the Planning Commission to develop code language, which would prohibit chain hotels and restaurants within the city limits of Astoria. So, uh, Ms. Fryer is working up a presentation for the City Council um, to be able to provide direction in terms of what they would like to see move forward and then that will also come to you in the form of code amendments also this next year. Yeah. So you have a busy, uh, busy year coming ahead of you on, on a host of code amendments. Anything else? Okay, we have uh, public comment, and seeing that we don't have anyone here other than Ms. Rideout, did you want to? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> we'll forego public comment this evening and adjourn. For the record, it's 10.01 p.m. Awesome.